0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
2: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
0: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We've also got Terry South here and Becca Hurley. And it is Friday. And if Dr. Matt were here, he would say, you made it. As he always does on Fridays.
2: That sounded just like him.
3: Wow. Well, we have been known to sound alike. I don't hear it, but uh, I don't know. Maybe a little. I've been with him for almost a couple of years, so that probably has more to do with it than anything else. This is going to be a great show today. among other things, we're going to be talking movies on screen cleaning in the third hour. That's going to be awesome, as well as uh, speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Talk about that big jazz win last night. But uh, coming up in this hour, we're actually going to be talking about uh, a more serious subject, which is suicide. But it's going to have an interesting spin on it. Um we in the state of Utah here uh, live at a higher altitude, and I've heard before that in places where you have routinely bad weather, like Seattle, the suicide rates tend to be higher. That's what I've heard. I lived there for five years, and I I loved every minute of it. But uh, what about altitude? Does altitude play a part in that? So we're going to be speaking with uh, our guest who's going to be talking to us about the research he's done and, and uh, giving us some interesting insights there. And first and foremost, we want to talk to Terry South, our wonderful producer, who's going to be giving us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country.
4: Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto his name, I guess, delivered a sharp rebuke of President Donald Trump in a speech Thursday insisting his country will not allow negative rhetoric to define our actions. President Trump, if you wish to reach agreements with Mexico, we stand ready as we have proved until now. Uh, always willing to engage in a dialogue, acting in earnest and good faith in a constructive spirit, he said during a national address. If your recent statements are the result of frustration due to domestic policy issues due to your laws or to your Congress... It is to them that you should turn to, not to Mexicans. Mm. Earlier in the day, Trump spent several minutes railing against illegal immigration at a tax reform roundtable in West Virginia. He also brought up the caravan of migrants traveling to the U.S. through Mexico, which the Mexican government, I believe, broke up. Mm. And then Trump praised them because, you know, they broke up the terrible caravan of people that were just walking north. Yeah. They had... I don't know. The whole <laughs> thing is is nuts. But, yeah, the Mexican president's like, don't take it out on us. Take it out on your Congress. Leave us alone. What do we do? And I love that he says
3: we're always willing to have an open, constructive discussion. We'll talk,
4: I guess. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska only needs Sasse. one word to describe President Trump's announcement that he's considering imposing an additional $100 billion in tariffs on Chinese products. Uh, Senator Na- Sass calls it nuts. <laughs> Earlier this week, in response to the U.S. hitting China with a tariff on fifty billion dollars in products, Beijing decided to raise import duties on fifty billion in American goods. On Thursday, Trump called this an unfair retaliation. Hmm. Like, well, you did it to them. Why wouldn't they respond and like? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's unfair. Yeah. You have no reason to do that. Well, we. I don't know. Why can't Wrong. we? <laughs> oh yeah.
3: See, there's there's another uh, one word answer right there. So Brown.
4: now now contemplating more tariffs, we're going back and forth, and then China Good will boy. respond with more tariffs, and it just keeps escalating. This is all too much for Sass. In a statement, Sass said he hoped Trump is just blowing off some steam again, but if he's even half serious, this is nuts. In justifying the tariffs, Trump has accused China of stealing U.S. intellectual property, and Sass said that while China is guilty of many things, Trump has no actual plan to win a trade war. He's threatening to light American agriculture on fire. Mm. Let's absolutely take on Chinese bad behavior, but with a plan that punishes them instead of us. This is the dumbest possible way to do this. Wow. We got a
0: bunch of real dummies.
4: There you go. And so, (laughs) again, he's from Nebraska. Yeah. Agriculture's big there. He's getting a lot of probably input from farmers who aren't happy that their soybeans and everything else isn't is going to be affected by all this. That's so, important to them there and, in Nebraska. And many, I, I was reading yesterday, a guy said, an economist saying, the way you win a trade war is you need to be unified. Mm-hmm. Go in with a unified approach. And China, he goes, of course they're unified. They have to be. That's the way their system works. You're unified or you go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's kind of how, how it's, yes. at least now it's the impression is. And uh, here, he goes, it just seems like it's uh, by the seat of their pants. Trump's just wakes up and goes, okay, toss another $100 billion their way. Yeah. Okay, do not- He's just going to keep doing it until they break. But if China doesn't break, then what happens? Ooh. It's, scary. it's scary. Yeah. It's scary. So keep watching. Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook, said the company would have to change users... Or would have to charge users if they want to opt out of data-driven advertising on social media. So if you want to get out of social... The whole point, it says here, during the interview with the Today Show, uh, co-anchor Savannah Guthrie-Sandberg said, Facebook does not sell or give away information on users, but our service depends on your data. Yeah, I don't. Your, your data, your data is the product, and people advertise with Facebook, and so they, when you advertise, you get access to a platform, so you can go ahead and target your data or your your advertising to the customer through the people on Facebook, right? Yeah. So they're using your data to bring advertising to you. If you want to be blocked from all the advertising. That's all Facebook is built to do, is advertise to you. So if you want to block their main product, you'll have to start paying for Facebook.
3: I think that would be a nightmare to educate people on, and I feel like they would have a bunch of lawsuits on their hands. From who? From
4: the, the users. What, what would they sue over? Well, okay. You're the product. If you don't get that, is that Facebook's fault that you don't understand what you're doing? Yes. Okay. It's everybody's fault but my own okay isn't that how we all go about life usually but i mean in the you know legalities i don't think there's much room (laughs) to stand on because you're the product Hmm. so now they're saying that if you want to opt out of being the product you're gonna have to pay us because that's how we make money is off of you yeah you're clicking on your news story you're clicking on whatever you think is interesting and that gives them the data to advertise to you
5: Hmm.
2: would you pay for it
4: no me neither there's other ways to do it. I use it as, an, as a more easy way to gather information. Sure. Like news and stuff that comes through it. You can have it all in one place, but there's other places to do that. So just don't click on anything, maybe? You can't really do that because how do you read anything?
3: Well, you just get the little preview and then you move on.
4: Well, I want to know more. Okay. That's so why you click on the story. Mm. Um, most of us forget all about ho- the hotel do not disturb signs. That is, it says here, until 10 a.m. when housekeeping's knocking on the door and you're still asleep. You're know, like, <laughs> oh, do not disturb. A retired Italian U.N. worker has amassed an incredible collection of 15,000 do not disturb signs from hotels, inns, resorts across the globe. His collection might have begun accidentally, but since then he beca- he's become passionate about the art, design, and stories behind their, these sometimes striking signs. So uh, this guy started collecting in 1995... He hung up a uh, interesting do-not-disturb notice in his office after bringing it back from a business trip to Pakistan. Hmm. Then someone said, these are nice. Why don't you collect them? So he started. And thanks to his job with the United Nations, he flies all over the globe. So he has this huge variety, huge collection of 15,000. He says there's two or three. Uh, he goes, uh, as his collection grew, his friends and families and colleagues started to look out for the signs on their travels. He... Uh, he also exchanges them with three other serious sign fanatics. Really? So there's there's more of them out it's like there. like a club. He says uh, the signs range from the striking to the cheeky, united in providing an intriguing insight into the changing tourism habits. So over the years, they change. Yeah. Designs change. Oh, well, look, that's interesting. You know and uh the 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 article I was reading like had probably like 20 of them in there that you could look at and you're like okay, oh, hey, right they're all do not disturb signs okay <laughs> so his collection is about isn't about money and it's anyone's guess about how much it might be worth ooh i have no uh, idea d- uh, dozens so, of
3: dollars So those
4: other three people it might be worth more money <laughs> yeah. you know he goes he goes. i don't think of it in terms of value or, or money he goes to me it's just fun collecting and i enjoy having them he hopes that at some point maybe he could Find a place that wants to put them on display so that others could visit and yeah. and take in the joy of like a museum
3: not, do in, not disturb signs. I don't know. I'm picturing some place in Washington DC. Really? Um, you know it's interesting you mentioned that it started out as an accidental collection. Yep. I you know, I feel like hotel keys could also be the beginning of an, an accidental collection. How many of those have you walked away with? None. Really? Because you got to turn in your key when you pay the bill. Some of them, a lot of places, don't make you do that though. Hmm. And so you just you're at home, and all of a sudden you find this hotel key that you're never going to give back, but just throw well, right mo- away in the mostly trash.
4: mostly now anymore, it's a card. Yeah, and so now yeah. it doesn't matter. They can just rekey. Who cares? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. But you know.
3: Yep. Interesting. I'm going to start me a, an accidental hotel key cards well, collection. It's called hoarding. So be careful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a slippery slope, folks. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be speaking with our guest that we, uh, we teased this earlier about, does altitude have something to do with high suicide rates? We're going to find out when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, uh, recently a, a team of scientists from the University of Utah, led by Dr. Brent Michael Kios, have come to the conclusion that people living at higher altitudes, yeah, they may have an increased risk of suicide. The researchers have a theory as to why this might be the case, along with some recommendations. Dr. Kios is with us this morning to explain. Dr. Kios, welcome to The Matt Townsend
6: Show. Hi Jeff, thanks for having
3: me. This is just fascinating uh, overall, uh, but also because we live in the state of Utah, so it's it's a little concerning. Um, so you started out uh, with this group of uh, with this group that you were working with. You started out by analyzing results from the other studies on this topic, and what were your findings?
6: Yeah, so the the paper that you're mentioning was a review where we aggregated a lot of different groups of research that's been published really over the last 20 years. And um, we looked at you know both epidemiological studies that look at the effects of altitude on large populations of people in the United States and elsewhere, as well as some more basic science research where uh, we look at the effects of altitude on animal models, um, and and based on all of that, we have some thoughts about what might be um, causing some of the higher rates of suicide that we we see at altitude.
3: And what are what are some of
1: those causes?
6: So the the basic theory is that if you live at high altitude, of course you're you know always exposed to reduced atmospheric pressure um, because the air gets thinner as you get higher up. And because of the reduced atmospheric pressure, we're always inspiring less oxygen. Um, And that means that um, overall we're relatively hypoxic, meaning that we have lower oxygen concentrations in our tissues compared to people who live at at lower elevations. And that can have a lot of powerful effects on the way the body works and, and in particular the brain. Um, The brain uses um, a great deal of oxygen. It's a very metabolically active tissue compared to other parts of the body and so requires proportionately more oxygen than other tissues and, and for that reason might be more vulnerable to the effects of hypoxia.
3: So which states are we talking about? I mean, I know Utah is mentioned on this list here.
6: Yeah. So um, generally speaking, the epidemiological data suggesting that altitude is associated with a higher rate of suicide um, shows that that's true for all the states in the Intermountain West. So Utah, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, uh, Arizona, New Mexico. In, in some studies, and depending on, you know, which set of years you look at, we don't always have the highest suicide rates. Sometimes Alaska beats us out, sometimes Maine, sometimes West Virginia, because there are lots of other factors that go in. Um, but if you look at the way that suicide rates cluster across the country, they're typically higher around the Rocky Mountains.
3: Wow. And does it, does the, uh, is there an increase in suicide the higher up in elevation you get?
6: Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. So, uh, one of the studies published by our group a number of years ago um, looked at the effect of the altitude of counties on suicide rates for that county, and, and found that there was a clear association um, between the county elevation and and the rate of suicide there. Um, so, you know, probably if you live in Summit County, which is a little bit higher than Salt Lake County. Um, the rate of suicide is overall a little bit higher.
3: Now Brent, you mentioned other factors that could be playing into this, other than just the um, the high altitude. What are what were some of those other
1: factors?
6: Well, suicide is a really complicated phenomenon. Sure. Um, you know, obviously, having a mental illness like depression or schizophrenia increases your risk. Substance use increases your risk. Um, socioeconomic factors are clearly associated with it. Um, so, people who live in poverty are often more likely to commit suicide. Unemployment is a risk factor. Um, population density seems to contribute, and that's something that might vary with altitude since some uh, rural counties tend to be at higher elevation and also have lower populations. Um, also, rates of gun ownership are a really important contribution to population trends and in, in suicide rates. Um, because having a gun is a clear risk factor for suicide and yet however
3: you you mention in your article that that the rates are they 're more associated with altitude than with firearm ownership
6: right um, and so that was a really important thing for my my colleagues to control for. Uh, when they did that study, because, you know, if if it wasn't the, the case that they controlled for that, then the elevated uh, rates of suicide at high altitudes could could be explained by other factors. And not only did they show that the association was stronger for altitude, but um, they actually found that there was still an association between altitude and suicides that didn't involve a firearm at all.
3: And this is just such an interesting topic. I mentioned uh, when I was teasing this topic before we, we started the interview that I lived in Seattle for a number of years, and the I always heard that rates of suicide were higher in places like Seattle because the weather is often rainy and cloudy, and that seems to do something to people's moods as well.
6: Yeah, um, and and that is definitely true to some degree um so if you look at maps of suicide rates Washington and Oregon tend to be a little bit worse than California um and and we know that there are seasonal effects on suicide um because you know when it's it's dark and gloomy in the winter and you can't get outside and you're not um having as much exposure to the sun um that can affect mood and so suicide rates tend to be somewhat increased Um, In darker parts of the year, um, although, you know, there's also some evidence that changes between the seasons um, and, you know, a shift in the amount of light that you're exposed to can can affect your risk of suicide.
3: Which which is really too bad because, you know, I'm a little biased because I lived in Seattle, but places like Oregon and and Washington are just so beautiful, regardless of, of what the weather is. So that's that's too bad.
6: Yeah, and I guess you could say the same for Utah, right? Oh yeah, so it's absolutely. Beautiful here too. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> um, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Brent Michael Kios, uh, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Utah, and we're talking about what what role altitude plays in suicide rates, and I, I'm curious you. Uh, Is this mainly among teens? Is this among older generations?
6: So the the data predominantly reflects suicide rates in adults, Okay. Um and so, you know, it's it's adults older than 18 typically, but we would expect that the same factors would apply to teenagers. Uh and of course, you know, increasing rates of suicide and suicide attempts among teenagers are a big concern. Um uh, but the data for that is relatively limited.
3: Seems like teens have a whole different set of problems that they're dealing with, you know, and they're just – a lot of them are eating Tide Pods and, and doing these really weird challenges. So, that yeah, that could be an interesting separate study. Um, it's, it's interesting. I read in your article that um, even though Utah and, you know, Wyoming and some of these other states that you mentioned have a higher risk of suicide because of the higher elevation, overall – they're actually at a lower risk of death from all causes combined. I thought that was interesting.
6: Yeah, and and the two things might be related. So one hypothesis we have is that um, mood disorders like depression and bipolar disorder and, and possibly anxiety disorders are in in some ways due to changes in the way the brain uses energy. Right, and as I mentioned already. Um, Brain energy utilization kind of depends on the brain's access to oxygen. So, um, having a lower amount of oxygen means that the brain isn't able to use energy as efficiently, and that could contribute to depression. Um, but one thing that might be true for the rest of the body is that um, when you have lower oxygen consumption, you produce fewer free radicals um, because, you know, when you're metabolically active, then um, your body is essentially producing toxins all the time that can increase your risk of cancer and so forth. Um, And so that might actually change the way other disease processes um, manifest themselves. You might remember some of those studies that show that if you restrict your number of calories, that tends to extend your life, and it's kind of the same idea.
3: Interesting. Now, Brent, we probably need to be clear. You're not advocating, <clears throat> excuse me. You're not advocating that uh, people in these states just pack up and move somewhere else at a lower elevation. What are what are uh, what are some uh, things that we can do to to help stave this off?
6: So I I think that um, packing up and moving is obviously not the right response (laughs) because, you know, the the effect that we see is a subtle effect that's really only evident uh, in large populations. So in terms of managing individual risk for people who um, are at risk of suicide because they have a psychiatric illness, Uh, I encourage them to work carefully with their physician or other providers, their therapist, to make sure that they're managing their symptoms. And I think other activities that just promote general wellness, like a healthy diet, uh, like regular exercise, I recommend to all of my patients at least 30 minutes a day of aerobic exercise at least five days a week. Um, making sure that you've got a good support network of people who care about you. All of those factors which would mitigate suicide risk wherever you live are, are equally important here and possibly more so.
3: Well, people in Utah must be aware of this because I see people exercising here constantly. It doesn't matter what hour of the day it is. It could be pitch black outside. There's always somebody running around.
6: It's true. I think a lot of people move here because they like to run in the mountains.
3: It is beautiful here. Um, Just in closing, Brent, and we we appreciate your time here on the show, what what further research do you hope to do on this topic going forward?
6: So we're currently doing a number of clinical trials that are investigating this hypothesis that hypoxia affects brain bioenergetics and that produces depression. So uh, right now we have a clinical trial involving women since we think they're more vulnerable to some of these effects than men are. And uh, that's using two nutritional supplements, uh, creatine, the bodybuilding supplement, and another called 5-hydroxytryptophan, or 5-HTP, which is a serotonin precursor. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter involved in depression. Uh, And what we're thinking is that people who haven't responded to typical antidepressants, uh, maybe because of these unaddressed bioenergetic deficits, will uh, be improved with these two factors because they can correct some of the the deficits produced by relative hypoxia, um, and you know our preliminary results from from an open label study which we didn't have a placebo control for uh, were really quite positive. People who had depression and um, hadn't responded to a typical antidepressant did much better with the nutritional supplements, um, and we're hoping that that will continue to be true with the placebo control.
3: Well, Brent, uh, once again, we really appreciate your time here on The Matt Townsend Show. His name is Brent Michael Kios, and he is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Utah. He practices inpatient adult psychiatry with a focus on the management of severe persistent mental illness. Dr. Kios also works at the University of Utah as an adjunct professor in internal medicine, neurology, and philosophy. And he's been talking to us today about... How studies are suggesting that suicide rates increase with altitude, but don't worry, folks. Don't pack up and move away from Utah and and uh, uh, the other states that he mentioned. Just get the help that you need, whether it's medication or psychiatric help. Then you can continue living in places like Utah and Montana and enjoying the beauty. When we return, we're going to continue the fun and the discussion. Here on the Matt Townsend Show, we'll do a little Coach's Corner.
7: I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back,
8: friends. Dr. Matt here. Um, one of the uh, things as we talk about leadership and learning... Um, One of my greatest learnings recently in my life has been about discipline. I've always felt like I was not a very disciplined person, Um, which is interesting because you can still accomplish a lot in life even though you don't have a lot of discipline. And uh, I'm going to give you some of the to-dos that I've learned about discipline and – it really is it's changed my life right so um one of the first principles i teach about it is we've got to learn to magnify existing discipline rather than trying to generate a new discipline if that makes sense to you what i mean by this is everybody has certain gifts everybody has certain talents abilities and when it, when it comes down to it, for example, one of my great uh, attributes or strengths I, that, based on um, an assessment – in fact, let me just tell you where to go do this. If you go to the website AuthenticHappiness.org, AuthenticHappiness.org, you can take an assessment that's called the VIA Character Strengths Assessment, and it will evaluate you on 24 of the top character strengths that uh, – that that you know exist, and it comes from years and years of research, over thousands and thousands of um, of years of of writings about character strength. And what they've come up with is basically 24 different character strengths. This is all validated academic research about happiness. It actually comes from Penn State University. So if you go to AuthenticHappiness.org and take the VIA character strengths test, it will rank your character strengths from number one to number 24. And the research shows that when people are really focused on what they do well, their number one strength, then it actually um, makes you happier. And so my number one strength is uh, social intelligence. My number two strength is like um, uh, spirituality. My number three strength is a love of learning. Um, Number fourth strength is uh, humor. Uh, Fifth strength is perspective and wisdom. So I have these different strengths, okay? And I've actually built my entire career around them. And in those areas, I have a lot of discipline. I'm very disciplined at paying attention socially to what's going on in the situation or being able to um, find the perspective and wisdom in something. I can can see that very quickly. My 24th area of strength is actually self-regulation. So I don't regulate myself very well. And what I found is instead of me trying to go generate more self-regulation, what I could do instead is actually get the benefits of regulating by using my other strengths. For example, when I sit with clients and I start to Uh, it's easy for me to get backlogged and and start having each client go over about five or 10 minutes. But what I found is instead of just being a lot better at regulating myself, what I might want to do instead is just use my strengths of social intelligence. Like, what is it like to be the person out there waiting for me for 15 or 20 minutes? And when I actually connect into what I'm already good at, I'm better at regulating myself. So use what you already do really well to help you be more disciplined. Does that make sense? But in order to do that, you might want to go find out what your character strengths are. I love it because my kids now, we've gone through this assessment together and everyone in my family knows what their top five or six strengths are. And the rule then would be, we're always going to ask them to use those strengths to, to do the things they need to do in their lives. So always start where you already have some success, okay? That's rule number one. Rule number two, choose to focus your firepower. Researchers have found that you only have so much willpower in a day. And it really is a finite resource. And the longer you go in the day and every decision you have to make actually lowers your ability to make the next decision better. <laughs> Um, and so that's why in the morning you have the ability to get a lot of stuff done maybe, but at the end of the day, you start wearing out. It's called decision fatigue, and many people are suffering from so many decisions in their life that they run out, and by the end of the day, they literally have a harder time getting to the gym at the end of the day. They have a harder time exercising um Focus, and so what? The one of the a, a great uh, book is called um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon, and he basically talks about a garden hose metaphor, where uh, if you if you put your hand on the hose, if you don't put your finger over the end of the hose, you know you've got like a, a drizzle of water, but the minute you focus it and add a little more pressure to the end of the hose. You can direct it a little bit easier. So what you might want to do is make sure that you're putting the things that you need to really exercise discipline um, to do, put those earlier in the day and make it so at night, if you, for example, have a tendency to go into the kitchen late at night and start eating, um, one reason that happens is probably because you've run out of willpower. So you'll probably want to create some other way to to focus on it. Sean Acor in his book Happiness Advantage has a rule that he calls the 20 second rule. He teaches that there's a there's a concept called activation energy. It takes energy to get a project or an activity started, right? It's like momentum. If you want to get something done in a you know, you know, to do a project at your house, it takes energy to get the project started. And the goal would be to always make the energy it takes to get started So easy that you can get it started within 20 seconds. If it takes you longer than 20 seconds to get something started, you're probably not going to do it. Now, by the way, you can take – you could actually take things, activities that you don't want to be doing. Like if you watch too many Netflix shows or whatever, maybe what you ought to do is start making sure that your phone isn't near you. (laughs) If you leave your phone upstairs in your bedroom and you 're down um, you know down in the kitchen you 're going to be less likely to go watch the Netflix show because your phone is going to be twenty seconds away. so the goal is very simply: minimize your activation energy, do whatever you can. He gives an example of taking the batteries out of the remote when he was doing his dissertation. He spent too much time watching TV so he put the batteries in a completely different part of the house, so every single time he um, needed to use the remote or turn the TV on, he would have to go out to the or up to his room to get the batteries. It's just a simple idea. So discipline, a lot of times, you don't need to be disciplined to do the entire project. You just need to be disciplined enough to do the first 20 seconds and, and get started on it. And then the last rule about creating more discipline in your life would be rely heavily on routines once you've used and and kind of created the easiest path and the pattern and you know what your greatest strengths are and you are able to focus your time and attention then make it a routine make it a habit i know people that have have now had an incredible discipline of knowing where their wallet and their keys are because they simply made one habit of coming home every day and putting their wallet and their keys in the exact same place every single day once you've made something a routine a habit, right, and the habit eventually will change the way your brain is working because of neuroplasticity, they call it. Once you've done the process over and over and over enough, your brain will just kind of do it automatically. Until then, find a way to actually discipline all your focus and your energy on the routine. And once you make the routine, boom, it'll make life a lot easier, right? Now, there's there's a ton of learning behind all of that and three or four books that you can go get, but start doing something today and don't just chalk it up to, uh, life's hard, I'm not going to do that. Discipline we all need, but again, you also already have existing strengths where discipline is already in there. It's already embedded in you. So start, if you're going to start somewhere, start focusing on what you're already good at and use that to help you through the things that you want to work on more. Uh, That's uh, some basics, uh, one-on-one on discipline and developing discipline in our lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
3: A while back, Dr. Matt spoke with Kim Giles, who is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and the 12 Shapes Relationship System, and uh, they talked about how to teach children to be kind. Dr. Matt asked Kim to teach us how we can teach our kids to be kind.
2: Well, I, this is a big deal this to is me. Hard. There's nothing I want from my children more than them to be kind to people and to kind to each other. Yeah, please. I want kind children. That That yeah. matters to me. And the lady who wrote in said she could tell in her family, even the adults had a tendency to gossip Mm -hmm. and kind of judge people. And and so the kids obviously are picking up up on this and they're learning to not be kind.
8: And it's an advantage in this world to just naturally be kind.
2: Absolutely. You'll do better in everything you do. Especially, yeah, just your self-esteem, your self-worth.
8: If you don't have to look to gossip and find fault with everybody—
2: well, and I find good self-esteem and a tendency to be kind usually go together. Mm. It's usually the people who are struggling with some self-esteem issues. And and we find what happens when you've got fear that you're not good enough, you have a tendency without even consciously realizing you're doing it to look for the bad in everyone else. Because if you can see bad in others and really cast them as, oh, my gosh, look how bad they yeah. are. They're the bad guy here. It subconsciously makes you feel like you must be the good guy or better than them, and it temporarily kind of helps your self esteem.
5: Interesting, yeah, but so in the it's long
2: fake. run, it doesn't help your self esteem because what you're really doing is giving power to this idea that people can be bad and not good enough, right. and some people are better than others. And you're giving power to that idea is going to, in the end, come back to you, and you're going to worry that you're never good enough too. That's true. So, so and
8: it's and you think about the world today more than ever. There's so many people that just need kindness. You know what I mean? It's like I don't know, it just seems like everyone's kind of more fragile in certain ways today.
2: I think it's the biggest need in our world when I look at everything that's going on on our planet right now, most of the problems are based in the fact that we see other people as less than us. Yeah. We see ourselves as better. We judge We're dividing ourselves into all of these groups by all these categories, and and it's us versus them. And the more we do that, the more conflict and hate we create on the planet. So I'm a really big believer that the most important thing we can teach our children is that all human beings have the same value. It doesn't matter where they are, what they've learned in their journey, our intrinsic value is the same. That's cool. And to teach them to never see another human being as less than them.
8: How do you how do you do that? How do you start teaching them to do that? I mean do you just I mean it's one thing to say it. I guess they have to see it in you too, right? You gotta lead it.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is by example. If you live that and you talk about it often, I encourage my clients to make this a core principle of truth in their life, that all human beings have the same value. And there's 100 teaching moments a day with my kids where we see people who are different and somebody makes a comment about that person. And it's a chance to say, "Okay, guys, remember, they're different from us. But all human beings have the same value. We're not any better than anybody else. They're just on a different journey. They haven't learned the things you've learned. They come from a different place. But we've got to be teaching that uh-huh. as just a, pr- a core principle of truth in our families every day.
8: It, and you know what? It's so funny about it is it's It seems like it's so old-fashioned. This is, like as, this is as old as the earth. To just is kindness. be kind. Don't you think that was like one of the first lessons taught to man? Well, kindness. And,
2: and no matter what background you come from, yeah. no matter what religion, this is a core tenet yeah. of your belief system yeah. is to be kind. But yet.
8: We struggle with it. And then and then We, we really we, struggle with even, it. Even into adulthood, you're like, you get it. It's a good principle. But. And then we start gossiping.
2: Yeah. So. Like I said, by example, most important thing, you, we need to watch ourselves because mm-hmm. subconsciously we judge and we look for the bad and we're doing it to make ourselves feel better. And I try to watch and catch myself. If I'm ever ha- even having a thought about someone in a judgmental place, I've got to remember, OK, that's just my ego wanting to me to feel better about mm. myself. So we got to catch ourselves. So
8: anytime you're bringing someone else down, even if it's just in your head. You're starting to just try to get hierarchy you're trying to gain position yeah
2: you're trying to feel better than other people if you're you're even going down yeah. that path and so. that's
8: not there's no need you don't need to tear someone down to feel better. you have to find a way to feel better. Without tearing them down.
2: Well, and and the same principle, believing that all people have the same value, means you're okay. Yeah, you have the same value as every person on the planet, and and I really believe that That's we're here great. to learn. Life's a classroom. Yeah, it's not a test. Your value isn't in question. You're okay.
5: Yeah, you Relax. don't need to put
2: other people down <laughs> to feel good about yourself. It's so, so true. That would be the number one thing, of course, is lead by example. Yeah. Actually, Model work it. on your own compassionness. Make sure you never gossip. Or put people down, and I have to admit, I come from a family um, that likes to tease yeah, and we do joke. Too. Yeah. And I, of course, I know you. It's You're my the wife. biggest tease I used ever. To not, no,
8: I'm not. I'm the second biggest. My wife's the biggest tease. Really? Not really. She's no, insane.
2: No one's bigger She's than saint, you. I, I don't believe that. That's
5: true. <laughs> it's totally true. <laughs> but
2: don't you think a lot of times in the in being funny, oh, we joke and gossip and <sighs> yeah, jab, there's jabs.
8: It's a, it's a jab. You could totally. Stab somebody.
2: We got to watch that. Oh,
8: totally. Because and, and sarcasm and, yeah, you got to be – you got to lift with your humor, not
2: – Tear down. Tear down. So we got to really watch ourselves because if your kids hear you making jokes about people – Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You're, you're teaching them not to be kind for sure. So, yeah, I just kind of discourage teasing. Make sure your teasing doesn't have a jab of truth. Behind it.
8: And that's hard because that's most humor has a jab of truth. Yeah. But you just have to learn not to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I found. Sometimes humor about, like, humor about somebody's not as funny. That's rude. You know, making fun of somebody's rude. But humor, like, towards yourself, yeah, everybody laughs at that. Everybody thinks it's funny to laugh at that. But. You got to be careful still yeah, because you, you could degree, take yourself down, okay. to,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. But I huge. think there's a line. And and I know I've had clients that are very sarcastic and I've tried to get them to recognize mm-hmm. the downside.
5: Oh, it's huge.
2: It hurts people. And they're if I get rid of sarcasm, I have no personality yeah, left.
8: Yeah, I have lost my identity.
5: <laughs> so
2: this is a little it's, it's a challenge for a lot of us, but I think it's one to work on. And why don't we replace it with praising people instead? and spend our days really looking for good in people that we can praise. Um I've realized recently my husband and I have some really strong differences of opinion on in certain areas Was this especially on your, like did you political. Do this,
8: oh, did you in your Alaska trip probably. You had a lot of time to talk. So you're like, <laughs> wow, we're different.
2: Well, so instead of being frustrated that he doesn't think the way I think, I've been trying to like look for the good in his perspective uh-huh. because there is some redeeming value in his core beliefs that make him see the world sure. the way he does. And the more I look for the good, <laughs> in a, and it's there. Yeah. If you look, you will find it. It's always, you always there. find what you look for. Yeah. Um, I also want to encourage my children to see beauty in the differences in people. Mm. Because that's one of the things we use to separate and divide ourselves from other people. But in reality, those are so beautiful that people are, come in such a variety of...
8: Yeah. A spectrum. And, it's not, Yeah, it's like there's beauty. It's not just black and white, but there's beauty in grays and every other color in between.
2: Right. It's so powerful. We need to teach them to look for the beauty in those things and also look for the things that connect us with people who are different instead hmm. of just the things that separate us.
8: And what if you could point out in something – someone's argument that you don't like, point out what you do like and show your kids that there is a – this is a good thing. yeah. And if they could see it, that's part of kindness. I guess. So
2: one of the ones in our family that's been this big dividing thing is: do you bleed blue or red? Yeah,
8: BYU you, or Utah, <laughs> University of Utah.
2: And you know, in this valley, it's huge. The other team is the enemy. <laughs> that's and so true. If we find out they cheer for the red team, I mean, they're the scum of the earth. Oh yeah, well, why they're, would they're you? They're bad people.
8: People from the dark side.
2: <laughs> And they hate us and uh-huh. there's such a hate behind it and it drives me crazy because I don't want my kids to think <laughs> any division is an excuse to see other people yeah. as the enemy and make them that worse funny? than us.
8: But every and every state has a rivalry. So this is everywhere or every everywhere. high school. Look, I hate every people town from that you know.
5: Isn't
2: that crazy? Yeah. New
8: York, New Jersey, come on.
2: Well, and we do it with even things like are you a Coke or Pepsi person Uh or Mayo or Miracle Whip person? I mean, all kinds of crazy preferences that we see them as the stupid ones because they like this other thing. Yeah,
8: and gender and race and uh, orientation and political
2: party. Political
8: party. I mean, you name it. And so it's really our, this is really our attempt to differentiate.
2: And to try to feel special and important and better. So remember, anytime you're casting any other group for any reason as less than you because they're different, this is something you want to be aware of. This is your ego taking over here. And And owning you. Not going to serve you.
3: Kindness seems to be a major theme on the show this week. And we're going to hear more about it later on in the show when Dr. Matt conducts the other portion of that interview This is the Matt Townsend Show. BBC News is up next.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
2: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
2: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
0: BYU
3: Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here by Terry South and Becca Hurley. And we are having a fantastic time on the show this morning. And Terry and I were just talking about something, uh, about a movie that's coming out this weekend that I'm sure a lot of you are going to go see. Um, Kind of makes me think maybe we should just
4: whisper the rest of the show no that would be that'd be annoying less productive well annoying too so
3: we're talking about the film a quiet place and you mentioned one reviewer said that if uh, you go to a movie theater and you make a noise people are going to be very frustrated with you you go
4: to a theater people there's some people that talk they comment on things oh did you see that wow wow." you you could hear Mm -hmm. them talking you know, I, like, I'll lean over and say something to my wife, but I whisper. So, like, she's the only one that can hear me. Yeah. But you'll hear people just having a conversation about what's <laughs> happening. like, be quiet. We're watching the movie. Well, this movie, apparently there's uh, there's large portions of it where no one talks. Mm-hmm. Right? So it kind of ups the suspense and the yeah. drama. and. If you're talking in the middle of that, it kind of ruins the effect of what the movie's trying to do and have this this suspense by just everyone's quiet. You bring up a good point, though, the movie theater etiquette, right? Yeah.
3: Even in a movie where there's plenty of talking, plenty of action going on. You have to be very strategic about when you partake in your snacks, when you're opening up um, your candy, especially if it's in a plastic bag. Right. Like you have to be – you have to try to be somewhat courteous to other people and and mindful that, you know, I'm not the only person in the theater enjoying the movie. I will say this. I did see the movie. I'm not going to talk too much about it. But one thing I will say is I've never been in such a quiet movie theater Because for that very reason, there's very little talking in the movie, so people don't want to disturb that quiet atmosphere. I don't even remember hearing too much uh, wrestling with the popcorn bag or the candy bags or anything like that. So people were uh, roped into this movie from the very beginning, and again, I've never been in such a quiet movie theater, except for the scary parts. Then people were
4: kind of going nuts right. and now the silence is part of the plot it's not oh, they're, yes they're not just making a silent movie it for is the called fun of it. a quiet place they're, it's part of the plot you if you watch it you'll find out what that's about but my wife says there's a a scene where like a woman is like giving birth and yes. she can't make any noise
3: <laughs> yeah and it's one of those things you see her you see her pregnant belly toward the beginning of the movie and you're thinking gosh how are they going to handle that when that baby comes right. out right and there are a lot of questions like that, like, ooh, what are, how are they going to handle that? And they address pretty much all of them. So wow. Cole and I will talk more about it. I, I
4: first saw the trailer for this one. Oh, just one of these kind of just it, it, it's a suspense movie and it's eh, whatever. It I just, is not your everyday run of the mill yeah. horror movie. All right. And it's PG-13. Right. So they, don't, they, they let your suspense kind of draw you into the, 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 that element of it without actually putting it on the screen. I love movies that do things like this to you
3: where you ha- you're required to be quiet mm-hmm. or you're required to listen. Silence is golden in the movies, I think. It requires more out of you when there's nothing on the screen. Right. Interesting. Interesting.
2: Hmm. Seems like that's kind of a testament to the movie. If people aren't wrestling, you know, the candy and all that stuff, then, then, yeah, the movie's like, made you be
9: silent.
3: It's part of the genius of that movie. And Cole and I will talk more about it here on Screen Cleaning in about 50 minutes. But until then, let's talk to Terry South more about what's going on around the rest of the
4: country. President Trump planned to read a double-spaced, single-sided page of remarks to introduce a tax reform roundtable Thursday afternoon. So remember, tax reform roundtable. Right. They went to West Virginia. They're going to have, this, they have all these people sitting there. They're going to have this discussion. It was going to be a good moment for, for the White House. They planned an event. The media would cover it, and then people would talk about tax reform on the news. But double-sided, right. single space.
3: remarks. That just gives you a headache thinking
4: about it. So he said he would have taken about two minutes to get through that content on the, on the page. But that would have been boring. Okay. So instead, Trump talked for nearly twenty minutes about everything under the West Virginian sun, as it says here. He spelled out the meaning of catch and release, mm-hmm. down to the definition of each simple word. Hmm. Catch and release—they're talking about that's kind of the, uh, what what he claims is the policy of the border patrol, is they catch people and then send them back. So, not fishing terms. Yes, he uh, he com- commented that West Virginia Governor Jim Justice for for he complimented him for being the biggest governor.
7: Justice is more than six
4: and a half feet tall. He's a big oh, guy. Oh, okay. Right? So he meant literally. Okay. Well, he's also a big guy, too. Yeah. So it's kind of both. Uh, he told the story of a man who went for a run and came back missing a leg and an arm. What? This is what Was he did. he attacked did. by
3: a bear Remember, something? this
4: is a tax reform roundtable. Okay. And then he showed off the... He also talked about the millions of people in California that voted twice or double, you know, twice, three times the illegal votes. He went back to that thing that has been... Remember, they had a commission... They yeah. put together to find out and about voter fraud. It was disbanded because they couldn't put any information together because there's really not that, there's no evidence of voter fraud on the scale to affect a presidential election. And it should be noted that President Trump won the election. He did, but he should have won by more. <laughs> oh, and uh, then he showed off the page of remarks he didn't read, threw it over his shoulder, and turned the remaining 45 minutes over to the 16 other panelists. Hmm. So the media just covered his 20-minute sideshow instead of what the White House was hoping was everyone would look at the tax reform roundtable. <sighs> so again, the message was there, but Trump was off-message, so but people covered up the how message how many meetings have you been to where you have a
3: topic that you need to cover, but you get... Going on some tangent. Yeah.
4: Well, eventually somebody steps in and says, "Hey, let's let's talk about why we're here." And that just no one wanted to do that because it's the president of the United sure. States.
2: Well, it's always a bad sign when you know someone's like, you know, I have these notes prepared, but uh, I don't think I'm going to use them. Yeah. Anytime you know someone's improving, it's just Ooh, never going to turn. We'll out go well. off
4: script. Uh, in other news, the president is considering slapping China with a 100 billion in additional tariffs, saying the country has repeatedly engaged in practices to unfairly obtain American intellectual property. Earlier this week, the Trump administration proposed 50 billion in new tariffs on chinese goods in retaliation china announced new tariffs on 106 u.s products including flamethrowers I, re- I believe yeah. uh, meant to r- roughly match that sum in light of china's unfair retaliation as they're calling it so we retaliate but apparently china can't retaliate in kind that's unfair yeah that's how it's being yeah. being played here uh, Their unfair retaliation uh, the president says i have instructed uh, the appropriate uh, offices to consider whether 100 billion of additional tariffs would be appropriate. President Trump is asking the Department of Agriculture to form a plan to protect American farmers from the tariffs hmm. somehow. And after the announcement, the Dow Jones futures—they were—it was after hours, so the futures plummeted. Uh, with the expected to open 400 points down, I'm not sure what it actually Ooh. did this morning. But he does this; it affects the stock market. Well, China says it will counteract with great strength if Trump acts on new tariff threat. Says uh, negotiations; they, they're saying negotiations impossible. How are we to interpret that? Uh, they're, they're going, going to, to respond strongly. They're going to do it again. They're going to just more tariffs. I just see. Keep at some point, I think we're, we're, we're each of us are going to run out of products to tax. We have to go back and retax products more oh boy so i don't know Uh, a handful of advertisers have paused their campaigns on facebook coo cheryl sandberg told bloomberg in an interview thursday sandberg is confirming the chaos around user privacy is having an impact on facebook's roughly 40 billion dollar business which is driven mostly by advertising the impact however is probably very small ceo mark zuckerberg told reporters wednesday that the controversy have had no meaningful impact on the company's bottom line really no meaningful impact. And their stock price actually went up after Zuckerberg went and talked to a bunch of media, did a media sort of. Sure. Uh, what do they call that? A circuit. He talked to multiple yeah, outlets, yeah. and all of a sudden the stock price went back up a few points. So You got to put in the FaceTime, folks. Yeah. So that works. Uh, finally, a UK man named Chris Nagy. He's a married dad of four. He hopes to realize a boyhood dream of entering the Guinness World Records book. Uh, bizarrely, he intends to smash the record for most number of ties worn at once. Currently, the record stands at 270. It was achieved by uh, Kerry Court in October 11th of 2016, also a resident of the UK. Chris said, I'll be making the attempt before the match. It's a, there's a soccer game coming up. They would call it football, but, you know, soccer. Uh, and so he's hoping to capitalize on the attention on the soccer game by uh, also raising money for charity and to being out in front of this stadium and doing his tie challenge or something. He goes, I'm aiming for 300 ties. That that'd push the record by, what, 30? Uh, he goes, with a bit of help. It's going to take about 45 minutes to put all of the ties on. But who knows? He goes, I haven't really practiced. I've seen a YouTube video of a previous record attempt, and the lady actually used a snorkel to breathe. So he might do the same. So he's putting them all around his neck. Yes. Okay. And so apparently they stack up enough where they may block your mouth or nose. And so if you have a snorkel, then you just breathe out the top and you're okay. So he doesn't have to do this within a certain amount of time. He just has to successfully put
3: on 300 ties. Yeah.
5: Hmm.
3: Um is
8: this a worthwhile
4: duh, record to, No. Oh, okay. No.
2: Only if the soccer game
4: ties. Oh wow, look.
2: I'm just waiting for that headline.
4: There. Thank you. It'll be there.
2: Whether he succeeds or fails, that'll be the that'll be the real achievement, I think. <laughs> I don't know.
3: I it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of effort required here.
4: He had to gather three hundred ties right. that have been donated from different people and he went and right. searched them. He tries to have unique ties. But he's he says he's known for his ties.
3: But there's really not a lot of creation involved here. Like, I might as well go stack
4: 300 books. All right. There's probably a record for book stacking. You could look into that. Or,
3: you know, I might as well, like, stock a bunch of shelves. But that's what people in grocery stores do on a daily basis. Okay. So I'm just...
4: Is it it more worthy if you grow your fingernails to just an absurd length? Is that more of a worthy record for See, that's at least gutsy. Because you have
3: to go out in public
4: Mm. And you have to deal
3: with the social ramifications of that. But a necktie, it's just like okay. But Should, you know, I'm happy for him. Mm. Go for that record, live the dream. Should he practice beforehand? I'm just saying it's not
4: my dream. Right.
3: Um gosh, I he might want to map things out. Okay. How would you practice that? I you know because by
4: practicing you could break the
3: record and no one saw you. There is some benefit that could come from practicing because you want to you don't have to put all of your ties facing forward like you mm. could put them off on your shoulder okay. uh going behind your back mm. but uh yeah. All right. I just I don't think that way so I'm not quite sure what the solution if is. If I see
4: if I see an update I will inform you if he did Thank indeed you. break the tie record. Thank you so much.
3: Well, We want to encourage everybody who's got a dream to go out there and chase it, make it happen. No matter how big or small or bizarre it may seem to everyone else, live the dream. That's what Dr. Matt would say if he were here. And many would say, wait a minute, that's not Dr. Matt speaking? Because apparently we sound exactly the same? I don't hear it, but that's just me. When we return, we're going to continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. How many posts did you like on Facebook today? What about Instagram? Did you write a Yelp review last night after a bad dining experience? Or in the case uh, in my case, did you go on to Rotten Tomatoes and rate a movie after seeing a movie? Or did you give a new song four out of five stars? We live in a world where we're always expressing and analyzing our preferences. Why do we like what we like and hate what we hate? And what do these preferences reveal about us? Well, Tom Vanderbilt joined the show not long ago to discuss these likes, and Dr. Matt started the interview by asking him how he got involved in this topic.
10: Well, I mean, the thing that that stood out the most, I think, is just that the number of ways decisions we make might really be influenced by other sorts of factors, that, you know, the the stuff we're putting in our mouth, the stuff that we think that we're liking, you know, we, we think it's really about the thing itself, but there's a lot of often subconscious or other kinds of uh you know culturally constructed factors that go into this. So, you know we we argue about our tastes, but I I would argue that uh those tastes can be often you know we we don't often understand what they are themselves or why yeah. we have them. And what what got me into it was just one of these simple questions you get from a kid. The kid in this case was my daughter and she you know like a lot of uh, kindergartners they were talking about favorites like what's your favorite food? what's your favorite color? And she asked me what my favorite color was. And I gave this answer of blue and I thought well, that's sort of an interesting thing. I, I don't think it's very uncommon, but why did I do that? Do it, is it really my favorite? If it is, where did yeah. that even come from? So I, you know, once I started thinking about that, I wondered where a lot of my other preferences
8: came that's, from. It's true. I mean, we were just talking about these new Oreo flavors coming out, and there's a blueberry Oreo flavor, and I immediately didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even tasted it. But I have I,
10: not but, heard about this. So it's blue, uh, blueberry and something else?
8: Or yeah, it's, I guess it's just blueberry uh, is the filling inside of the Oreo now. Yeah. And, um, and then they have another one that is kind of like a Fruity Pebbles
5: uh-huh.
8: uh, type of flavor. But neither of them did I like, and yet I had an actual opinion. And I'm thinking right now as you're talking, I'm thinking, why do I even have an opinion?
10: Well it's funny that you bring up something that's uh, you know kind of an interesting part of of consumer science here, which is that we're sort of i think as humans we we're, we're often kind of hung between liking f- what's familiar and liking what's new and so those Oreos i guess in a way they they take an old familiar concept and then apply a new flavor so mm. you know you, they're kind of you're, you feel safe on the one hand, but then they're trying to get you to branch out into that and it might you know novelty though is kind of frightening it might take you to actually a few. Exposures, as they call it, of eating those Oreos to begin to like them. But if you really didn't like them to begin with, you're probably only going to grow to dislike them more. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we talk about endless choice. This is the thing. When I was growing up, we had one kind of Oreo. You're right. Right. Now there's, what, 10 or something? Yeah,
8: the proper kind, really, right? I mean, it wasn't even double stuffed. It was just stuffed.
10: Um, yeah, and I think we have so many of these choices that, you know, often we feel overwhelmed or we try to look for shortcuts. To make decisions, so it, it, the bad side of this is that we, I think we sometimes write off things ahead of time that we actually may like simply to try to filter out so much information in hmm. the world
8: is now how did you get into and what did you what did you learn about why we like what we like I mean you said it's complicated because it probably comes from upbringing and expectation, and sometimes it seems like it comes from not really thinking about it
10: yeah, and a lot of these things aren't aren't Hardwired per se. I really thought they, there would be more of that. I mean, for for color, for example. So it turns out blue is the most often uh, chosen favorite color, and especially among men, but but everyone overall. And um, the, the argument here that I got from a psychologist, the theory that I like the best, he calls it ecological valence. We, if you, t- if you take a list of all the things in the world in the natural world and the way we feel about those, and he he's done interviews. The things that people feel most positive about seem to be, off, more often than not, uh, blue-colored. I mean, the, just take the sky, for example, a clear hmm. blue sky. Who doesn't love that? Right. Uh, water. We need, if we see a body of water, we sort of you know, makes us feel happy. We're made of water. So you know, he, he argues that the, that sort of presence of those things, the feeling of that thing, kind of almost you know, subconsciously trickled into our feelings about things that are blue that aren't in the natural world, like you know, a, a, a shirt. Um, so it's kind of this process of conditioning where, you know, you just come to associate good feelings with it and that makes you feel good about the thing itself. And if I could just continue here, the the thing, there's another theory called processing fluency. I think this applies to music as well. When you start to hear a song a few times and you begin to like it, I think what's often happening is what, what's really happening, you're beginning to understand that song, what to listen for you know, the, the way it goes, certain unexpected moments, you, you begin to become familiar and sort of fluent in that song. And the argument psychologists have is that w- that makes us feel good itself. I mean, regardless of what the actual song is, just the fact that we're kind of mastering that song. So y- sometimes you hear something the first time you're really not sure. Then you start to hear it again and again, and you start to get it, and then voila.
5: Oh, yeah. And then
8: you've, yeah, you know right when that drop's going to hit, and you know how it's going to feel, and it, it probably makes life predictable.
10: Yeah, and then the flip side of this is that, you know, like music or food, we can begin to become satiated with something. We just – we've had enough. I mean, there's a more clear reason why that would happen with food than with music, but it just hits that point where you don't want to hear that song again. You have to let it rest for a while, and then uh, you move on. You look for the next new thing.
8: Yeah, and yet yet you may still have the same breakfast every morning for years.
10: Yeah, I mean, that's a funny thing. Like, I think we are – our tastes shift even in the course of a day. You wake up, and part of this is just practicalities. You're not really going to go out searching for adventurous food the minute you wake up. You just <laughs> want to sort of put something in your mouth, yeah. break the fast, and you know, get to work. So we, we don't have a lot of adventure seeking in the morning. We, we rely back on these you know, very familiar things, which make us feel comfortable. But by the time dinner rolls around, we might actually have more of an appetite for something new.
11: It's
8: funny that we think of food as adventure-seeking, but you know, I guess back in the day, you wanted a simple berry. Let's just have berries in the morning, and then in the afternoon, when I'm really in for it, I'm going to go out for a hunt and go get something really good for the family.
10: Exactly. I mean, what what is what is familiar is what did not kill you yesterday. So I mean, <laughs> that, right. as you say, back in this uh, you know Paleolithic whatever time, we were food choices were more than just, what will I have today? It's, you know, what will help me survive today? And it, it, why go, why expend a bunch of energy looking for an apple tree in the next, you know, village over when the one right in front of you is good. I mean, what the body tells us is that, you know, often, you know, we do need a, sort of a bi- balanced diet ideally. So there's this funny mechanism called se- uh, sensory specific satiety. The weird thing here is when you begin to eat a meal, the moment you begin eating that meal, your, your liking for that food, studies have, have kind of shown, begins to, to fall off. And it, it will hit a point where you just really can't eat any more of that thing. yet, if you brought something else along, suddenly you'd have a reset of your brain and your palate, and you'd be ready to eat at least some of that again. Huh. Just the body sort of sending out these little internal signals that, hey, you should move on to something Something new.
8: Keep yeah, yeah. Keep balancing, probably. I guess. Um, talk about the choices we make. I know in the book you, uh, the book titled "You May Also Like," you, you talk about the fact that we we make choices, preferential decisions every single day. How how many of these are we making a day?
10: I mean, Brian Wanzik at, at Cornell, who's a food researcher, estimates just with food there are two hundred decisions a day, and you know that's. You can think going to the world now where there's so much to choose from, a a site like Amazon, or simply going out, if you go out for lunch, you have to decide where to go, so you might open a site like Yelp, and then, you know, you start reading the reviews, and this is something that kind of got me to write the book. I just found myself, you know, I I like information, so I would find myself reading 10, 20 reviews, By the end of reading those reviews, I'd sometimes be more confused than when I opened (laughs) the the, the site, whether I wanted to go to that place or not, because one person had a great experience, the next person had a mild experience. So I found myself trying to review the reviewers and and figure out whether they were authorities. And it just, you know, we we are all expressing these opinions now every day, and it's made life easy on the one hand, but very difficult uh, on the other.
8: Yeah, but 200 decisions on food a day. No wonder we just want to have a favorite.
10: Yeah, and and, you know, and some of these sites, I, mean, I just, for example, on Amazon, I ordered a, a pair of bolt cutters that I needed. I, I don't really know what a good brand of bolt cutters is. I just, <laughs> but I looked, and some one one product had four and a half star average reviews, about four hundred reviews. I thought that's probably a pretty good pair of bolt cutters. It's not like someone's going to say, as with a movie, <laughs> right. you know, I just couldn't relate. To the bolt cutters. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's so much easier with, with things that are just products versus what are called, you know, taste goods, books, films, things. That's where people start to get really suspicious when they see other people expressing their own personal taste and, and the, the confidence in those reviews falls off.
8: One of the things, too, it seems like we, we not only like our likes, but in today's day and age, we like to talk about them. We, we share them, and we like to like things <laughs> with Facebook. And is this a new phenomenon where we're more and more vocal about our likes?
10: I don't know if it's so much new, but it just – the the Internet and social media just makes it so much easier. Yeah. To, you know, you, It takes hardly any effort to post something to then like something. I mean, you you hinted something here that that has been sort of seen is that we do kind of have a bias toward positivity. We don't – Especially with with you know friends or, or strangers, also we, we like to broadcast our likes. We don't so much like to broadcast our dislikes. We sort of keep those closer to our our chest. Um, the the old uh, punk rock musician Johnny Rotten, I think, walked around with a T-shirt that said "I hate Pink Floyd" on it. But most people don't do that. They 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 want to wear a T-shirt with the band that they like.
5: Right, right. And,
10: um, you know, so that that seems to be a more positive you know uh, factor in, in kind of and people kind of heard on the positive opinions and, and you see this on, online as well.
8: Do you see that – I mean a lot of this seems to be about you know, social, sec- social security, not the, not the agency or the program in the government, but <laughs> yeah. just feeling secure socially by promoting what I like to tell everyone else I'm like you.
10: Yeah, this may go even go back to we were talking about sort of um, you know evolutionary biology. This may go back to our our kind of upbringing in small groups and you know where conformity really meant survival that you were inside this small group. But but the thing here is interesting that psychologists have talked about something called conformist distinction, which states that yes, we all want to be like each other, but we all also want to be just a little bit different. You know, you, you if you if you come into work. Wearing the same thing that your coworker is wearing, you have this kind of you know nervous laugh for a minute, and you did know, you guys coordinate your wardrobe? So, or let's say your neighbor buys a new car, you really like that car, but you'll feel a bit weird about buying the exact same thing that he has. You'll m- perhaps want at least a different color, a few different options. So, I think we're always you know trying to just be just a little bit different. And in an age, you know, when when a lot of people have access to the same things, this makes it more of a difficult. Challenge to achieve this distinction that the the sort of points for distinction become very small
8: well, what have you learned about um, our likes and our and being offended? I guess it's because our it's our identity it's we think it's who we are
10: yeah, yeah, and I think you know my daughter was asking what my favorite color was because she was trying to figure out what her favorite color is and at at the age of six you don't really know much about your identity, but you can start to form what you think are things that will create your personality so that they just reach for. Something like color, but the rest of us, you know, it goes on. And I mean, and some of these things are—I I would caution, you know—they're—they're they're pretty surface sorts of things. And, and the example you can use here is, is online dating, when two people are you know looking to you know, when two people, you know, someone's trying to find a, a partner, a potential date. You have all these, you know, kind of surface interests you, you can write down. I mean, the studies. On the success rates of those are are not encouraging. It's just those things don't really seem to indicate Hmm. much about the strength of a long-term relationship. It's it's a lot of other things, and arguably, it's you know, my my wife and I had have very different musical tastes, for example, but we were able to overcome that because there were kind kind of deeper forms of compatibility going on. And you know, in some ways, it's a better test of a relationship if if I can actually tolerate her musical taste that I hate, rather than that that we just automatically love the same thing. Um, So that's just just one indication.
8: And sometimes maybe your like changes simply because it's your wife, right? So now all of a sudden, you might find yourself defending something that your wife, like that might not have ever mattered to you or that you've, that's always driven you crazy. But then when someone else puts it down, you're like, ho, 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 hold it. There are people that like that
10: exactly and plus you're you're going to be exposed to some of those likes no matter what and this, this is just i can't stress this enough just just from with music for example just hearing something just mm. repeatedly it will start to sink into your brain and and before you know it i mean i sometimes work in brooklyn here at, at sort of coffee places and you know this is kind of younger people than i playing music that is not necessarily what i would listen to but it it just is in the back of my head all day and sometimes i'll be reaching for my phone and Opening Shazam to identify the song. Yeah. Hey, it actually sounds pretty good. Isn't that cool? But
8: <laughs> I mean, that's that's a. But really, again, that, that's a great. I love Shazam. For example, I did, went to a dance concert, um, a high school dance concert, and you know, every fifth song was like, "Whoa, that's cool!" And I'd play it, and this old forty-seven-year-old man's playing Shazam or listening to Shazam to try to find new songs. But um, it's. I guess this is it, and what you're really trying to do, it sounds like in the book, is have us be more deliberate, have us be more contemplative about what we like, what we don't like.
10: Yeah, and, and your example is great, and I, I'm glad to hear you're the same exact age as I am, but uh, <laughs> and so, you, so you know my pain here, but uh, you know, people of all ages, so, I mean, not just our generation or the baby boomers or millennials, I mean, they always think the music of their youth is better than the right. being played now, and what's happening there, I think, is just kind of a a memory bias where we only remember the really good stuff and we sort of filtered out all the bad stuff. So the comparison that was used to me was that your brain's almost like a jukebox playing the hits you loved. And, and also, you know, there is something about the age. There is kind of a sensitive period about listening to music where it really seems to have the most impact. And we also have the most time to, to listen to music and it, it helps form our relationships. And, and that's kind of in that late teen Period. So I think that stuff really does hit a special sweet spot. And it can be hard to overcome that and, and look and seek out new things because you're sort of thinking, well, why, sh- why should I even bother? I-, I like what I like. So
8: right. what's the point? Is, um, have you ever heard the song Sounds of Silence that's, that just came out, the version that just came out by Disturbed?
10: I don't think I have. Oh, my
8: heavens. Okay, so this is what you've got to do, Tom. Because okay. it was, go look up Sounds of Silence uh, on YouTube and Disturbed. Because Disturbed is like a hard, hard rock. I don't even know what you call it. I don't know the genre, but it's rough. And um, uh, but then Sounds of Silence, Simon and Garfunkel, which you know I was raised on, and it's just a piece of heaven. Hmm. Then all of a sudden you hear a rocker sing Sounds of Silence, and it's honestly it was it was amazing. It was incredible, and it put together a new like for me. <laughs> Um and I, all of a sudden I guess that's this what well, that's what this is about is allowing a space in your life to evaluate why you why you like what you like and like you're saying no know, know some of the reasons behind it there's a there's kind of a rationale that's going on as we're doing it but man it converted me in a second to to hearing my music played a different way and it was amazing.
10: And you bring up a great point with just the word genres that you know genres are one of these sort of filtering mechanisms i think we use to just try to sort out the world and and they really play a large part in our life to the to the point where someone will say you know i do not like right country music i mean just writing off the entire genre until they happen to hear something maybe in a maybe in a film soundtrack or a or a commercial that they don't even know it's supposed to be country but (laughs) then they hear it in this without that genre label sticking at the top i mean when i it's interesting when i talked to the guy who founded pandora the internet radio service, he said that he, he wanted to, in the beginning, he thought, well, we should just give no information at all to the listener about what's playing, not the artist, not the genre, nothing, because this would help get past these expectations uh-huh. that people have. People told him this was actually a dumb idea, and it, it didn't happen this way, but um, so, but just, just the point that, you know, it, you saw the word disturbed, you thought, "Yeah, oh, what is this? What I is know. that? <laughs> An alarm went off, like, do not like, do not like, but, Right. <laughs> it's
8: powerful. Um, and we've got a, about one more minute. What was the? Uh, you've studied so much about our likes and our dislikes. Is there anything that just blew your mind? Any learning that you had that stood out as wow?
10: I, I guess you know, just just again, the, the way so much comes from what, what psychologists call top down. Like we've we've already made the decision before we've even had a chance to make the decision. That when, when when you talk to People who work in professional sensory tasting—these are people who have to evaluate food products. I would ask them, you know, do you do you like it? Do you not like it? And they said, we never use those words because just just using those words would throw off our entire sensory mechanism in terms of actually tasting that product. Mm. So it just it just it's like putting on a, a pair of sunglasses or something. It kind of blinds you to what you're actually uh, experiencing. So just, I guess. I, <laughs> The, the appeal here is just to be more, you know, open-minded. It's not, that, not that you're still not going to think some things are better right. than others, but to not do this discounting ahead of time that we so often seem to
8: do. Good stuff. Tom Vanderbilt, appreciate it. Uh, great work again. You may also like, is the name of the book, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice. Go to TomVanderbilt.com to get more information about all of his books and his uh, all of his recent tweets as well. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Keep up the good work. Great advice. Uh, don't just stay just remain open i mean there's there might be part of it you like or at least you experienced it right sometimes having a like or a preference if you've actually experienced other things might be even more valuable of a like anyway interesting also we probably ought not beat everybody up for their likes and dislikes either stick with us folks interesting stuff this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back
4: I'm ready
7: to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back,
8: friends. Dr. Matt here. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour. And they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious. And some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some
3: thoughts you don't even think about. 90 percent of thought you don't even think about. How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching, reading, reading. Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and
8: your, your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the, the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head and I found that there's, uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some, some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are – they stay in your head because of energy – right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head and to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us. right? Uh, the thought about scheduling your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed, Uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids, don't forget to unplug the iron, all of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule Because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder
3: for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything.
8: See, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. (laughs) I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thoughts, So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow? And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so? Maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon. And that occupies
3: energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day... And that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this – when you
8: had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I'd check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't otherwise, I just delay it, and I create fifteen more thoughts of it. Do it now, if I have a prompting that I really ought to call so and so, I would either schedule a call to so and so or I might not call him. I might text him, and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. how are you doing? I'd just check in now that will create issues. I get that, but You're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or you know, the thought I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, Band-Aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line, and then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to – that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out, but I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to, but I – if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes, and they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes – They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
3: Earlier in the program, we replayed a portion of an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Kim Giles, who is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, and she's one of our good friends here on the Matt Townsend Show. And they were talking about uh, the need to teach children to be kind. In this segment, Dr. Matt uh, started by talking about how kids feel better when everything is not a competition.
2: Yeah, I I think it. You like who you are when you know you're a nice person. You take some pride in that. And I think one of the important things with kids is we need to look for kindness. And when they do, yeah, do something kind. Out. Better make a big deal yeah. of it. And, and I even want to watch for too much praise about wh- what they look like or what they do. Because
5: uh-huh.
2: if all the praise we're giving them is you won, you did good, or you look cute today, they start to think that's who they are. And I want them to think their kindness is mm. really the core of who they are. Yeah. So we got to point that out a lot. Even
8: if they're just kind with a friend, point that out and they might bring it home. Or if you're when you see them kind with their brother, point it out. Like That was a big deal. I really like how you took care of your brother right
2: there. Yeah. And matter of fact, this works really well with teenagers even. Does it? Okay. Because I've got a house full of them right now. And I've noticed the more that I point out, you know, you're just such a compassionate person. I love how considerate you are. I watch that in you, and I'm amazed by just what a sweet, kind person you are. I've literally turned a teenager that was starting to be a little um yeah. teenagerish.
8: Yeah. Like, why did you look at Ben right when you said that? Because <laughs> that's ironic. We always look at Ben whenever we think of teenagers. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, anyway. I know, it was
2: subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I've but, seen yeah, you... my daughter start to take this pride in the fact that she's such a considerate person, and she tries to be that even more all the time because I've made her think that's who she is. Yeah. So we, we can have that kind of influence on even older children.
8: Isn't that amazing? Just what you focus on will grow.
2: Absolutely. If you'll just
8: focus on it. That's cool.
2: So another one, I... I'm a kind of a student of human behavior because I'm a people skills expert. This is what I talk on. So we're always kind of watching people. And I want my children to become more compassionate about why people behave badly. So when we see someone behaving badly, instead of judging or criticizing them, i like to step back and say, I wonder what's going on in that person's life, you guys. Don't you think they probably have been walked on and hurt so much in their life that now... That they're kind of defensive and they're quick to attack and be mean to other people, but it's because they're trying to protect themselves. Can you guys see how their fear makes them behave badly? And isn't that we, – we can then gain compassion yeah. for the person instead of just judging them. So be a people watcher. Help your children start to understand that it's hurt people who hurt people. Mm-hmm. And,
8: and take the place of other, like.
2: Put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Kind Why of.
8: would you – how could somebody get so far that they would do that? What would have to be going on? That's a neat human trait if we let it – if we kind of guide our kids there. And once they've got that, that's probably one of the most powerful leads to empathy and, and compassion is just being able to see it from your frame of reference. How cool is that?
2: Don't you find with adults? We have all these adults that haven't learned to Mm -hmm. do that, and it's really causing problems. And and they
8: actually have anger and energy that they feel justifies why they're this, why they, they, it feels right. Right. Well, what am I supposed to do? Just think everyone's great and just be taken advantage of? They haven't
2: learned how to look at things from a different perspective. So we can really help our kids change their whole lives if you can teach them this while they're young. Um, I think... As an adult, apologizing when I'm wrong is and, – and maybe that's weird that I'm relating this to kindness. But I think it's showing that it's okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it helps our children have more compassion for people who make mistakes if we let them see that it happens to everybody. None of us are perfect. We're all students in the classroom of life. And we just apologize when we're wrong and do better next time. I think it does increase compassion if they see that behavior. Yeah. I see parents who are trying to convince their children that they are perfect, they're never wrong, and that's what you're putting out. So
8: shut up and listen. It's just not yeah. compassion Doesn't behind work, that does it? as much. It's such a good point.
2: Um, I also like to teach my children to cheer for other people's successes instead of be jealous because we have a tendency to tear down people. I, I want to have my children watch and see that I don't tear down people who are rich or successful, or because that's a yeah. common thing yeah. that we kind yeah. of criticize.
8: It's not about them, is it? Again, it goes back to your very first point. It's about you. You're valuable. You don't need to tear someone down to increase your value. Not a bit. You're you're already there. In fact, you only you only impact your sense of value when you tear people down.
2: So I want to celebrate the wins of other people. Isn't that awesome for them that, they're, that they've are that they been able to create that and cheer for that instead of ever mm. tearing people down for those things? That's cool. Um, I also, in my article, I teach this technique. I used to call it the sneaky technique, <laughs> but we changed it. We call it the encouragement technique. Okay. And this is kind of what I was talking about with my teenager. If you've got adult children, you really can't teach them to be kind in quite the same way. So if, if the ship is sailed and you now have these adults in your life who are unkind, yeah, the way the encouragement technique works is you, you look for opportunities to tell them how much you appreciate what a kind person they are and that you never hear them say a bad thing about another person. Now, even though at some level this sounds like lying because yeah. they're not being that way, I don't consider it lying. I consider it that you're seeing the highest best in them, even though they're not, they're not showing it yet. You know it's in there.
5: That's cool.
2: So you tell them, I see this person who's kind, and I, I just love that about you. And what naturally happens is people want to live up to your highest opinion of them. And if they think, oh, my mom sees me as somebody who never gossips, then, they're not going to gossip around you, or the, and they're going to try to be that person that you see in them.
5: That's so true, huh?
2: And this works with spouses, with, with anybody. If, if you give them encouragement by just seeing this good in them, they will rise to the occasion. They'll change themselves. They'll want to be that person. And it's a really loving way to get someone to change. And
8: it's, it's kinder. It's gentler. I mean, again, that's, I guess, the whole thing to the kindness is you're just trying to elevate people to being their very best self. So just focus on that.
2: Focus on their best. Instead, Let them know that's of what the you opposite. see in them.
8: Because yeah. being unkind is focusing on what, when we don't see that. Right. That's tough.
2: And, and I think as parents, a lot of parents try to get our kids to behave better by criticizing, uh-huh. pointing out the faults and yeah. kind of nagging. And really that does not motivate Mm-mm. them to behave better. It sometimes makes them passive aggressive and want to behave worse. So we really find if you just praise them, you'll be amazed at how much they will continue the good behavior.
3: Leave it to Kim Giles to give us the insights that we need to become better parents. That's going to do it for this hour of the Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we're going to be doing screen cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome to the Wheatley Minute.
3: Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here with uh, by um, Cole Wissinger. Just pick a preposition. I'm here either way. <laughs> with by on adjacent to. Anyway, it's going to be a great show because we have we've we're going to be talking about a couple of new movies that are out that we are kind of excited about, and I think the whole world is too. Uh, We're also going to be revisiting an interview that we did with Neil Harmon of VidAngel, helping your families watch movies however the bleep you want. And of course, we're going to speak with our good friends uh, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. But before we get to all that, we want to mention something that is going to rock some worlds, I know. I know it will. There are a lot of fanboys and girls out there that are either going to love this news or they're going to hate it. And that is the fact that... Following this next installment of Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones 5, yeah, uh, starring
9: Harrison Ford, he's going to be done. Which makes sense for a 76-year-old man that's still traipsing through and fighting Nazis. Right. So then the question becomes, well, what
3: becomes of the franchise after that? Because you can no longer, like you used to be able to do, you can no longer just let a franchise just end you have to keep it going. It's too much money always, at right? Stake. Yeah, especially when Dis- Disney has its fingers in it. They have a they have an, an interest in it even if they don't have the film rights because they've got the ride at Disneyland. But Steven Spielberg is talking maybe we do an Indiana Jones with a female lead as Indiana Jones, but Cole, you want to share the name of this female character? Well,
9: Indiana Jones was what he floated <laughs> out there to the cosmos, which makes all the sense in the world because Indiana Jones' name is Indiana Jones. Yeah. What do you think about this? I'm, no, I, I'm all I for it. it. I love yeah. it. Anything that keeps Shia LaBeouf away from this franchise oh, as far you're as possible. Oh, so, you one of those. So Indiana Jones 4 was not a great movie. It kind of killed the franchise for another – we've been – it'll be 10 years probably by the time we get the fifth one out there. And so we're kind of rebooting again, get another concept in there. Hopefully we'll have some kind of tie-in as opposed to the Laura Croft kind of just entirely reboot with an entire different person. Mm. Um, I enjoyed I'd it. like a tie-in to Harrison Ford. I like that guy.
3: I enjoyed it more than you did it sounds like. And I think the problem was it kind of had the same – downfalls that Last Jedi had and that the fanboys and fangirls were a little too harsh because they built up their expectations in that it wasn't
9: a good movie and that they
3: made (laughs) they made this movie in their own minds and when it didn't match what they thought it should be they hated it they turned on George Lucas and Steven
9: Spielberg at least the Last Jedi didn't have CGI meerkats. And yeah, they were cute. A they had CGI. Bomb going off, and Harrison Ford inside of a refrigerator. They had CGI porks.
3: Okay, I take issue with that too because anyway, we'll end it with this because I like to be the last one to talk. But if you've got a problem with a nuke in the fridge, then you've got to take issue with parachuting out of a plane in a in an inflatable raft.
9: It looked better.
3: Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, Cole, speaking of Steven Spielberg, we want to yeah. talk about this new film, Ready Player One. Which I And think, speaking about 80s things yeah, like Indiana Jones. I think you and I are going to see more eye-to-eye eye on this film. Uh, we'll just talk about it for a couple of minutes because I want to make room for the, the movie that is actually coming out this weekend. But uh, Ready Player One, just briefly, is about this Steve Jobs-like character who's created this virtual reality game that everybody participates in, and it's called The Oasis. This creator passes away, and I couldn't help but think of Willy Wonka the entire time I was watching this because— That's the idea. Yeah, because he uh, he leaves an inheritance up for grabs by saying whoever— collects these 3 keys in this game and gets this easter egg, you will inherit control of the oasis and half a trillion dollars. Not a bad reward. Right. So
9: everyone clamors and starts trying to find those keys, including these bad guys who are part of this corporation and it's kind of I
3: thought of Mr. Salt putting all of his workers to work trying to find the golden ticket and mm-hmm. all the bars of chocolate. Um. So very, very good casting, Very a lot of good throwbacks to pop culture from the
9: 80s and 90s. Uh, the whole movie is built upon the throwbacks yes. of the pop culture of the 80s and
3: 90s. I will say, I've got my notes here, uh, it was way longer than it needed to be. It was so long. It was one of those movies that had about—there were about six different times. Okay, we could end it here. Oh, no, we're still going with it. Okay. Um, there was kind of a lot of language, which I may not have noticed as much had my 12-year-old nephew not been sitting next to me. So uh, They keep
9: it PG-13 because they avoid the one particular language word that you're not allowed to say too many times in a PG-13 movie. But they say all the other ones. They, they did it. say You're it. right. There's, they say it once. They say it once, which you're allowed. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. You get one. Um, The genius of this film, though, is that it it pretty much requires multiple viewings because there are so many pop culture references that you can't possibly catch all of them on the first viewing, mm-hmm. you know. And my favorite scene has got to be the scene where they revisit the movie The Shining or the location of the movie The Shining. I thought that was – one of the cleverest scenes in a movie I've seen in a while.
9: So, video game movies have often struggled. Lara Croft just recently came out, it struggled at the box office. When you base a video, when you base a movie on a video game that exists, it has problems. Ready Player One is based on a book, and they use a video game format to tell the book's story, and I think it works really well because your classic story structure. When you go to screenwriting class in film school, you have three acts to go through, and there were three keys and three achievement points that they had to get through, and so it kept the story very linear. I I don't think it is that long. The ending. The ending kind of drags on as they hit you over the head with the message of the movie, I will admit. But there wasn't really a place to end it before then because you had to get all three keys.
3: Don't get me wrong. I would go see it again. A lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, it makes you kind of long for days of yesteryear where you're playing Atari games and Going and and, uh, watching...
9: But also the point of the movie is that we shouldn't be longing so much for these old creations that we should be trying to create something new in our life. That's true. That was
3: was one of the creator's regrets in the film. Anyway, now we want to talk about the film. And I joked about this earlier, but maybe we should talk about the whole movie where
9: we whisper the entire time because it's called A Quiet Place. And that would make for great radio.
3: Uh, It would also enrage people. But it's interesting because... You and I both noticed that last night in the movie theater, we went to different movie theaters, the audience was quieter than any audience I've ever been a part of.
9: And maybe it's the effect of going on a Thursday night where you have people that are serious about wanting to see it right away. Maybe sure. maybe next week on a random Tuesday, you're going to get a much more raucous crowd. But this movie is reliant on its sound editing and its ability to use silence and just quiet noises through the whole thing. and. Both of our audiences were extremely yeah. respectful, and it was the most unique movie-going experience can I've you, had in a long time.
3: Can you give us a really brief synopsis of this film?
9: Uh, John Krasinski and his small family are in a post-apocalyptic kind of world trying to avoid these monsters that rely on sound to, to predator— a, uh, against their prey, uh, yeah, they've, they've wiped out a lot of the people's civilization. Uh, they're Demogorgon-looking things from Stranger Things, and they rely entirely on sound to find. I thought their this was
3: people. a much scarier creature than the one in Stranger Things by far. Uh, I thought
9: they look like the same thing.
3: <laughs> they, well, somebody in their review wrote that it kind of looked like uh, the aliens from Alien. And I think it's got that going on things. as well. Yeah, sure. So really quickly, I I did love this film, Me but. Too. But I think it's a film that the better you think about it, the more you'll enjoy it. I think there are some things – I'm not the type of person that will sit there and pick apart a movie like a lot of people did with The Last Jedi. But there were some things that I noticed, like the the, the presence of the hearing aid. I'm thinking, why would you want to fix her hearing aid if we're not going to be able to hear anything anyway because we're trying to be quiet? I did think it was funny every time a character shushed somebody else. It's like – isn't that what you're supposed to be doing 100% of the time anyway? What's with the shushing? Um, and then I also kept thinking, how come nobody's set any traps for this thing? How come we're always just, we're just trying to avoid it, but nobody's setting any traps?
9: Well, we did know that they had armor. Mm. John Krasinski had his little conspiracy board where he's trying to figure out how to beat them. True, true. Um, but having said
3: that... It is a smart film. I know I I said that the less you think about it, the better it is, but it's a, a smart film. There are some sequences in this movie that are so clever, but that also at the same time kind of honor some other thrillers of movies that have come out. I thought of Jurassic Park and especially one particular scene. It's a nice, brisk pace. They did themselves a lot of favors by keeping it to an hour and a half, I thought. And uh, John Krasinski, I think, has really got to be commended for his effort here.
9: And it's his directorial um, coming out party, really. I I knew that you would also enjoy this movie a lot because it it centers around family. When John Krasinski was talking about the making of this movie, he was inspired a lot by his own family. He's married in real life to Emily Blunt, his co-star in the movie. Um, and. More, more than the horror that came into it, it was the family that really um, drove the movie.
3: Yeah, and it's funny because while I was watching it, I was thinking – because we did that show a couple of weeks back about double features. And which two movies would we pair together? And I want to ask you before I give you my answer, what movie would you pair this with?
9: So there's a horror movie that came out on Netflix okay. a little while ago called Hush. Interesting. That's entire concept is this guy's trying to break into a house that's owned by a deaf lady. Yeah. And so it plays with sound a lot. She instead of the bad guy, because there's a lot of there's other horror movies that pair like with different visual uh, different kind of impairments. Yeah. Um, But Hush uses the fact that there's a deaf lady being invaded.
3: I couldn't shake the feeling of this movie would pair perfectly with 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, yeah I really a... thought because they're both like Ten Cloverfield Lane was more of an atmospheric movie that you know that you have this feeling of claustrophobia, but there's also this alien element, maybe or maybe not, um and they just they make very good use both movies make very good use of atmosphere and sound, really, mm-hmm. so yeah. You definitely want to go out and see um, A Quiet Place. One thing – another thing I'll say about this movie, I don't remember a single swear word, which is not too surprising because there's hardly any Any dialogue in it at all. But yeah, I – it's always gutsy when you have a movie where there's minimal dialogue. But when you do it well, it really pays off. And I can't remember hearing candy wrappers being rattled or people eating very loudly, or no talking. The audience was dedicated to making sure that the that the atmosphere being created within this movie was maintained. You know, I loved it. I would go see it again, for sure. I'm still not sure which one I like better, 10 Cloverfield Lane or A Quiet Place. I'd probably sway more toward 10 Cloverfield Lane, more from the psychological aspect of it. But as far as creature features go, you could do a lot worse. This is a great movie.
9: Yeah, back-to-back weeks, I had my favorite movies of 2018. Last week, I thought that Ready Player One was the best thing I'd seen, and then I like A Quiet Place a little bit more.
3: Really? Excellent. Well, it's it's so refreshing to be able to go to the movie theaters, especially this time of year, and see a couple of movies that are, that are really good. enjoyable, that are actually you would go see again. Anyway, when we return, speaking of content, we mentioned some of the content in these movies we've been talking about. Speaking of content, we are going to come back with a discussion about VidAngel, which is interested in helping families watch movies and TV shows however the bleep they want. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson, and uh, we are still trying to get Neil Harmon into the building. Neil Harmon is the CEO of VidAngel, a company that I'm a big fan of, actually. Cole, are y- are you aware of, fam- or uh, are you familiar
9: with VidAngel at all? I absolutely am. It's been played quite a few times in my apartments as I've moved around Provo.
3: Yes, and you know they've gone through some changes. Uh, they've had some legal troubles. It used to be that uh, VidAngel was a company that would buy up a whole bunch of DVDs, physical DVDs, mm-hmm. and they would produce a a filter or multiple filters for that movie. Okay, so you could edit out as a viewer, you could digitally edit out language,
9: violence. Uh, Sexual content. Pretty much clean up these otherwise R-rated or violent or just inappropriate movies. Or even
3: the opening or closing credits of the film. So for the people that don't like to watch the opening credits. Yeah. Um, But several Hollywood studios were not fans of that, including Disney, Warner Brothers, Lucasfilms, and 20th Century Fox.
9: Which... Kind of covers the big ones nowadays,
3: right? Right. So they took VidAngel to court, and uh, they are not they are not able to currently filter release filters for those films while they're in in the thick of this trial with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, they've had to change their method of conducting business. Okay, so. I think that their their beef with VidAngel was that they didn't have permission to remove those protections on those DVDs in order to access, or in order to be able to create these filters, and they're saying that the copies that VidAngel owned, the actual physical copies of these DVDs, were unauthorized copies. Okay, so the 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 jury is still out on that, but in the meantime, they have rolled out with a new method of conducting their business which is to um work through these other apps or streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO uh programs through Amazon. And since those companies have licenses, this is how they feel they're able to get away with it. Disney's also not happy with this, let's just say. <laughs> And I was lucky enough to be able to be a uh, a participant of the testing program. I think it was an alpha testing. I really don't know the difference between an alpha testing and a beta testing. Do you, Cole?
9: No, I just know that gamma testing is whenever you eventually grow large and green and get angry all the time.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah. I've never done that sort of testing, although I think my leg has turned green at some point or another. I don't think that's Hulk syndrome. <laughs> so I was invited to to participate in the testing program. So basically, the system works the same way that it did before. Uh, you can edit out all the violence, the profanity, the sexual content, anything that's objectionable that you wouldn't want to be exposed to or you wouldn't want your children to be exposed to. Uh, the big difference is instead of purchasing... The, the physical DVD or the digital copy of it for $20 and then selling it back to them for $19 in credit. So essentially you were renting it for $1 a day. Um, you are, you're able to access these filters through the memberships that you have in these other companies like Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO. Interesting. Okay, so with Netflix, obviously that's eight to ten dollars a month, right? Amazon Prime, the same thing. HBO might be a little more. So right there, you're you're spending about thirty dollars to be able to access these filters. Well, you also instead of uh, doing the one time fee to VidAngel and then selling the movie back and all that, you are paying eight dollars a month for a membership. Ah, in so instead VidAngel. of like
9: as you go and. Is is it $8 a month? Because that could end up being cheaper, uh, depending on your movie-watching habits, than what you were doing anyway. You'd have to watch more. Um, As soon as you watch nine movies, you've gotten your money's worth. Yeah. From what it used to be.
3: So they might not have all of the selections on there that you would want because, as we stated earlier, they're not allowed to make filters for... Uh, Disney movies, 20th Century Fox movies, Lucasfilm movies, so you won't see any of the Star Wars movies, and then also uh, Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to see any Harry Potter films on there, unfortunately. But I don't know that there's too much objectionable – too many objectionable moments in the Harry Potter films, maybe toward the later ones. You might have to be careful about showing those to your kids. But uh, overall, it's been a pretty good experience because, like I said, there isn't too much different as far as the functionality is concerned. But it got, the biggest concern is something that you brought up, like you, maybe you have to – that means you really have to watch more movies mm-hmm. to really get your money's worth. Um, what I like about it is that they have more – there's more of a TV selection there. So all of a sudden, all these shows that I wanted to watch on Netflix but chose not to because of
9: you know, the profanity
3: or the the sexual content, now all of a sudden I can.
9: Interesting. So they have they have some kind of like algorithm that goes in and finds the objectionable content on anything that is within these these different platforms, and it just kind of takes it out. It's not someone that has to watch every single scene and like find it, <laughs> because there's a lot of episodes of television. I can't imagine someone in the VidAngel HQ that's just watching all like 300 episodes of The Simpsons or something, or thousand, however many of those there are.
3: They watch everything that they create a filter for. They watch from beginning to end. Wow. So I, what I was told is they, um, the way it works is they it has the, the employee that's doing it. It has to be something that he would watch anyway without the filters, right? Clearly, oh, he's yeah. got to be comfortable watching, or he or she has to be comfortable watching it. Um, they're not paying people to like compromise their morality. They, this is an okay thing, <laughs> right? This is something they were going to watch anyway, yes. or they've already seen it, maybe mm-hmm. you know. Um, and another thing I should mention is it's very. Uh, you can get very detailed. They go through everything that's objectionable, wow. down to every single last swear word. Mm-hmm. So if you if you see that there are fifty seven bad words and you only want to bleep out some of them, you can do that. You can bleep out things individually instead of just saying I want a a very strict filter on this, or I want a moderate filter, or I want no filtering. You can get very Detailed about it, so and that's I'm, something
9: I appreciate. Yeah, Amazon Prime, for example, has The Wire, which was a popular HBO series that right. has quite a bit of profanity within it, and so um, that's one where if they've been able to really delve into each one of those profanities, yeah, be useful to take out. We'll be right back here with Neil Harmon, the CEO of VidAngel,
3: and continue the discussion here on screen cleaning, helping you to make better choices on what to show your families, entertainment-wise.
7: Welcome to a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Midnight Sun is in theaters now, and many people are comparing it to the recent film Everything, Everything. The basic plot of both is a teenage girl living with a disease that must stay indoors despite the cute boy beckoning outside her window. This time around, Katie Price, played by Bella Thorne, has XP, which means she can't go out in the sun because it could kill her. For years, she has watched Charlie, played by Patrick Schwarzenegger, go by her house every day and wished she could say hi. Hi. As you may have guessed, they meet and the love story begins. Well, Midnight Sun is a better film than Everything Everything. Thorn and Schwarzenegger are believable as a couple. Their love story does not feel like it's forced on you. This was surprising. I thought these actors did not have it in them to make such good performances, but they really act well. This is not a masterpiece, but it is enjoyable and a nice story of a couple trying hard to be together. There are some corny moments in the film, but they are quick and they really don't detract from the story. Instead, there is human interaction with friends and family that feels natural. Typical 18-year-old reactions and parental worries are woven into the film, as well as showing love for the other person. While Midnight Sun earns its PG-13 rating from underage drinking at multiple parties, teenagers are seen making out and there is some swimming in the bay in just their underwear. I enjoyed this film much more than I thought I would. I'm giving Midnight Sun a B-plus grade. This is Sean O'Neill. Thanks for listening. This is a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson, and we are privileged to be uh, on the phone with Neil Harmon, CEO of VidAngel. Neil, welcome to Screen Cleaning.
11: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for
3: having me on. Absolutely. So uh, we just spent some time. uh, I was actually one of the early testers of, of this new model that you've got set up. So we just spent some time talking about how that all works, and uh, really the, the great things that, that you can do with this new business model. So congratulations on that, first of all, and uh, thank you again for, for uh, being on the show today. You bet, Jeff. Uh, we mentioned those four studios uh, took issue with this and sued VidAngel, and I, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what has happened and where things are at right now.
11: Nothing really from the Ninth Circuit. They've taken the the case under submission. Uh, we don't, based on the judges, the two judges' comments beforehand with the hot mic, we don't have high hopes for the way that it'll turn out. Yeah, but um, we need to get to a ruling in the Ninth Circuit in order to get to an appeal. So it's, it's going to be a, a step in the process. Um, the Ninth Circuit, their website says that they usually rule on things within three to 12 months. So, I mean, we we could be all over the board as to when we hear back from the ninth circuit.
3: Sure. Sure. So, as I said, we mentioned the new, the new model that you guys have set up. What's the, what's the feedback that you've gotten other than the feedback from us here, which has been a glowing review, by the way.
11: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Jeff, I, we've, we've, uh, you know, I have a huge smile on my face, not only because I'm using VidAngel again in my own home, uh, along with all of our customers. But also because uh, the, this, the new system has been received really well, and um, we've grown faster than we expected um, to grow on the new system. And, um, uh, you know, that, that provided its own challenges, um, but we've managed to get on top of technical issues, and and um, it's re- working really smoothly. We just launched uh, tvOS and um, Amazon Fire TV, and we've got more platforms that are coming and a, a, a ton of great content. So.
3: so what are what are some of those other platforms that you're rolling out with here in the near future, hopefully?
11: Um so right now Roku is under beta and um it should roll out under the Roku store in the in the coming uh weeks and months. And um uh and then we are working on uh Samsung Smart TV. Uh we're working on um Xbox One. Wow. Um, And uh, uh, other platforms, so you know we envision this to be you know that you can watch however the belief you want and wherever the belief you want. So, um, yeah. Anyway, we're excited about the future.
3: So, Neil. Clearly, whenever we travel to some place like Hawaii where we get on a plane where we've got a few hours to kill, most of those airlines will show films that come edited. And, you know, maybe it's in the contract that these studios have with the airlines that that content can be edited. But why is it that they're opposed to companies like yours doing this? When clearly they have other arrangements already set up on airplanes and on TV, why why will they allow that but not what you're doing?
11: Well, let let me just reiterate your point. Um, this isn't just VidAngel. One of the six there are six major studios that comprise the Motion Pictures Association of America: um, Disney, 20th Century Fox, uh, Universal. Sony, um, Warner Brothers. Anyway, one of the six, Sony, they tried to launch a system because they saw the market that, that VidAngel was was serving. They, they launched uh, the clean, cleanversionmovies.com in June. And they made available airline cuts of movies and TV cuts of movies for people to be able to watch with their whole family. And directors went into a huge huff and puff over this, and the DGA threatened to sue uh, Sony and said that their contracts wouldn't allow for this. So those movies have already been cut. that It's already been done. It's already been signed off by the directors, but from moving them from 30,000 feet down into your living room is not allowed.
3: And that, and, was, a, that um, was a quick about-turn, wasn't it?
11: Yeah, it was about three weeks before Sony shut that website down. Wow.
3: My goodness. Yeah. Okay, so
11: that, that just reiterates the point that, yes, I mean for there's a, a deep-seated reason that these people don't want to allow for these things to happen, and what we're told is that the directors are artists, and the directors want people to experience their art as they envision it and or not to choo- choose to not w- watch it at all. And in the case of the aer- airlines, the government forced them uh, because you've got six-year-olds and you've got 60-year-olds on the airplane together, and and they're all watching the same screens, and so the government forced them to do a, a child-friendly cut. Um, same thing with the television. Um, television is you know broadcast uh, freely and widely available, and so they envision that there'll be mem- uh, people of all ages within the home, and so the government said, you have to do this in order for your movies to be there. And Hollywood has had a history of when there's big checks being written and there's a, there's a big market that they're willing to, um, you know, let the money come and, and change the, the art, so to speak. They do it in China. They do it in the middle East. They do it all over the place, but they sign off of those on those and they, and they get a big check. Yeah. And um, but and they're forced to do it, quite frankly, every in every instance, they're forced to do it. Um, And so I went with one of a a studio executive who's well known in the industry to visit the studios. And he said after our meetings, he says, Neil, I'm not sure how you get this resolved. It's almost like these guys need a scapegoat. They need they need the law to force them to do it. Yeah. And, um, And the more I go through this process, the more I'm I'm convinced that's the case as well. So
3: it seems like in that in the case that uh, the appearance that you made in in Pasadena, it seems like Disney said if VidAngel can come up with another way of conducting business, then we'd be happy to take another look at that, which you've done with this new model that you have set up. But it seems like Disney still has an issue with that. And maybe they're showing maybe they're showing that they truly just don't want edited content out there.
11: Yeah, they have to concede that filtered content must be available in some way because they lost. Disney was one of the primary studios that fought the Family Movie Act of 2005. Yeah. As, as we visited people on the Hill. And the only thing that I can think of is that it dilutes their market. They think they own the family-friendly brand. And so when families are able to access content from other studios and watch it with everybody, then they don't have just Disney to go to. So that's the only thing that I can think of on an economic level, why they'd fight so that fight this so hard, but they lost that battle. They have to concede that something is possible with filtering. Um, But uh, they don't want it to be anything that people actually want to use that actually works. Uh, They want people to use old technologies that don't work, that are hard to use, that are expensive. And they don't want the, the filtering to move into the 21st century and and that's what VidAngel is fighting for, is that that, that that law can actually be of use to people in the 21st century.
3: Well, Neil, we really appreciate what you and everybody else at VidAngel is doing, because at Screen Cleaning, our mission basically is to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment, and we we count you a part of that. Uh, I, I do have a couple of other questions just about some of the functionality of um, VidAngel I'm curious to know, you already mentioned going forward that uh, Hulu and um, Fandango and, and Xbox will be a part of it, uh, your plans rolling out forward. Um, what? When will members have the ability to make requests? Because I've got a huge list of films and TV
11: shows that I want to request.
6: <laughs> so that's about, that's
11: probably, you'll probably see the re- request feature appear on the website uh, with, um, probably early to mid-September.
3: You just made my day right there. I mean, I can yeah. wait. I can wait one more month. That's fantastic news.
11: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we need that data. We need that data, We and, and it should be there already. Um, our engineering team is just working around the clock. Um, this is a more complex system than you might imagine, and um, they've had to spend more time on scaling and other issues uh, than they... Than they've been able to spend on new features, but I think we're, we're on top of that. And I know that right now, current I saw in their priority schedule, like that's the next set of features on the docket is to where you you'd be able to search VidAngel and find all movies and all TV shows, and the ones that aren't available for filtering that you can just click the request button.
3: You know, I wonder if you're gonna have the cable companies coming after you next, because I'm definitely cutting the cable here pretty soon. Especially when the Especially when the request feature gets up and running. Uh, just a couple of other questions. Uh we talked a little bit, Cole and I, my my board op and co-host of the show really, we we talked a little bit about how the editing or the filtering process works. I'm curious to know if you happen to remember what was the first film. Uh, for which your team created a filter?
11: Well, I wrote the very first version of VidAngel Angel myself, and I tagged my favorite movie at the time. It was um, Cinderella Man. Oh,
3: that is a great movie with a lot of language, so that's a good one to choose. Yep, yeah, I love that movie. Uh, are, are, do you find that there are some films that are a little more difficult to edit or to create a filter for?
11: Well, the, the 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 tagging is is crowd sourced, so there are people all over the country who do it, and these people um, are people who so they agree when they when they become taggers um, that they only tag content that they watch already. Yeah, and so so everybody just just tags the content that they're already watching, and um, I I know that there are I know that um, uh, violent Shows are hard to cut because, or, or to tag because sometimes if they're extremely violent, they can get really choppy. Yeah. Um, and, um, no pun intended. And so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but we're working on new tools to make that smoother and, and easier to do. And our ultimate goal would be to get to the point where this is more of a Wikipedia-style system to where anyone can add to the tags, take from the tags or, or, or tag any movie that we haven't gotten to themselves so that they can, you know, that they could do a filtered version for their own family. And um, that's where we want to get to. But today it's just a, it's a, it's a group of uh, people throughout the country who, who do the tagging. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know, but I've noticed that, that um, on particular like war movies and things that sometimes things can get choppy if, if, uh, if they
3: have to tag it heavily So Neil, I'm not going to lie and this isn't to say anything negative about Disney, but I have to admit I am a little disenchanted with them over this but also because we just found out that they're ending their deal with Netflix, so we're going to have to pay more money to, to access their movies ha- Has this experience for you, has it, uh, has it tainted your view or your family's view of Disney films or Disneyland at all? Um, you know,
11: so I feel like Disney has a wonderful history and the spirit of Disney and and of Walt Disney um has so much going for it. Um I feel like that sometimes that can get hijacked by um, like business practices and monopolistic business practices and and um and Disney owns you know uh, probably about half the entertainment market i mean that in at least in the u.s and um you know they own espn they own the marvel series they own star wars i mean they pretty much snatch up every major um success pixar every every major success story and um they're using that power and clout to um to maximize their profits and um you know they've burned some relationships and had some ugly lawsuits as a result of that. And, and, you know, that, that kind of behavior eventually, I-, I saw it with Microsoft. Microsoft is a great computer company. And, and then they, they, they used some really really questionable practices to achieve some of the things that they did. And, and um, over time, there was a lot of animosity built up towards them. And as soon as another company came along offering a similar solution, people were happy to, adopt something new because they had negative feelings associated with that company. And if Disney's not careful, they can, they, they can run a similar course. Well, Neil, just
3: to, just to end on a positive note here, in about 30 seconds or less, give us, give us the impact that watching filtered movies with your family has had on your
11: life. We have children from zero up to 14 years old. And when we can watch something all together— um that's you know, a bonding experience for from, from our for our family and that we can laugh about what we saw or talk about it over the dinner table. And uh the moment we have to separate the family and watch in, in different groups, um it it um you know, filtering has made it possible for us to experience more stories and more content all together and, and we just we just love it. We're so grateful that it's back.
3: Well, Neil Harmon, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here on Screen Cleaning today. Neil Harmon is the CEO of VidAngel, and his company is helping families watch however the bleep they want. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. It's part of the show where uh, the part of the show where we get to head on over to BYU Sports Nation to see what's coming up on their program and to get some insights into the world of sports. Because if it's not the Los Angeles Dodgers, then I'm totally clueless. So, Jeremy and Jason, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks for your insights. Hi, Jeff.
0: How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I love that music by the way. It reminds me of like the like like something from the 80s like the uh like an episode of Heart to Heart or something. <laughs> like it just reminds me of like that era of television. That's what we're going for. Like late 70s early 80s TV. Yes.
3: Yes. So we're all about nostalgia. And uh, cheesiness. And it's interesting because we talked about the movie Ready Player One that you guys mm-hmm. should go see. I love it. Jason, I loved it. Jason has seen
1: it. Loved it. And then um, the other one we wanted to tell you about was oh. A,
3: A Quiet Place. And I'm signing as I'm saying this.
1: Oh. Yes. Have you heard of this film? It's, it's called what? A
3: Quiet Place.
1: No, I have not. Are you serious? I've not heard of it. I've not either. What? Oh, the one with uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt? Yes, this is going to
3: be the movie of the weekend for sure. Real life
5: husband
1: and wife? Yes, that's absolutely right. And fun fact, they lived in a uh, a condo downtown Pittsburgh. They moved out, and my brother-in-law moved into that same space. Really? Yeah.
0: Also fun fact, they were both in the running and ultimately did not take the roles in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Captain America and Black Widow. Wow! Of Captain America, it was it was Chris Evans John and Krasinski? John Krasinski Come were the finalists. On. They went with Chris Evans. Hey Come now, on. hey now, that's not too
3: hard to believe because he's actually the new Jack Ryan. Well,
1: it's, yes, that, that one's going to be hard to believe.
0: Now, now <laughs> it was a little different with Emily Blunt with Black Widow. She was actually offered the role and turned it down. Wow! And I believe it. I can't remember which movie she was doing wouldn't allow her to do it. Mm. So they end, she ended up turning it down. But they both could have been in the in all of these mega blockbuster movies.
3: You know what, though? I'm, sh- I'm sure they don't regret it because, like I said, John Krasinski gets to be Jack Ryan and Emily Blunt gets to be Mary Poppins.
5: Yeah. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. You need to go see this movie, though. You will never be in a quieter theater. And I'm not talking, like, because there won't be anybody in the theater. But the audience just goes dead quiet because there's— minimal dialogue in the entire movie and so you don't want to be the person that's like opening up a bag of skittles (laughs) during the
0: the really climactic scenes you know yeah so so that's funny now in this state you know the likelihood of this happening is probably higher than in most so this is probably not one (laughs) you would want to bring your your i don't know six month old to
3: yeah, in fact, I my wife didn't even want to go to it, and after seeing it, I thought, you know, my wife probably would not have been able to handle that movie, not because of the scares, but just from an emotional standpoint. Oh, it's a
1: scary movie. Yes. Is oh. it a horror or is it a
3: thriller? It's a horror and a thriller. How about that? A thriller.
0: That's exactly what it's I was going to say. Yeah, or a Thor. Uh, a horror.
3: Yeah. A horror. <laughs> There, there are some emotional <laughs> aspects of the film that I don't think my wife could have handled. That, that deal with the family in this film.
1: You can't handle the emotional aspects. You can't handle the quiet. That's right. No, I honestly oh, okay. have not heard huh. of this, but uh, I, I saw I'm a preview and I was intrigued. Like uh, sound ticks off the, yeah, the uh, anime or something. So they have to be completely silent. Go oh. see it.
0: That's okay. all I'm going to, to say is go Maybe I should it. play this game with my children at home.
1: <laughs> as, as my uh, wife's mother calls it, the rock game. Oh. The rock Let's game. let see who can be a rock for the longest. Oh. Yeah, it so lasts Like about if you five talk, seconds. I'm throwing a rock at you. Oh. you know? <laughs> that too. No, no, uh, no. Isn't that? ancient history stonings here. Speaking of nostalgia, isn't that what you were supposed to do with
3: the pet rock? Throw it at people? Didn't you? I never had a pet rock. I'm just kidding. We never did that.
5: <laughs> anyway,
3: <laughs> hey, speaking of, of silence, uh, that we just went silent there for a few seconds.
1: What is coming up on almost, your
3: show here in just a few almost minutes? Almost three in
1: the key on that one, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> the spring scrimmage for BYU football is tomorrow at Lavelle Edwards Stadium. If you're local, you want to go to it. Uh, it starts at uh, 1 Eastern time. I believe gates open an hour before that. So... Uh, Go to Lavelle Edwards Stadium and check that out. What are we looking for in that scrimmage? What do we want to uh, see happen? Uh, and what will the headline be Monday? Are you asking me or? It's a rhetorical, rhetorical Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: you. We're also yeah, I
1: suppose you could answer
0: <laughs> if you want. It's your show. Yeah. <laughs> we're also kind of looking ahead. And BYU football.
1: President isn't good enough, so we're going to look ahead.
0: <laughs> How realistic is a 10 win season? For BYU in the near future. We're going to talk about that as well. And why Ooh. is
1: 10 kind of the magic number there? Why is 10 the uh, aspiring number? They only well, have, what, like 15, 16 games? Uh, 12, uh, 12 plus one.
5: Yes. Yeah. That was close. And
1: baseball delivers a top 10 play on SportsCenter last night. Mm-hmm. And men's volleyball locks up the one seed in the conference tournament. Are you serious? Yes. That's awesome. We'll talk to Sean Olmstead. We'll talk to a Yahoo Sports writer as well about the impact of Gonzaga staying in the West Coast Conference on BOE football. Hmm. And are you going to be talking about the Jazz at all, or should we talk about that now? We can talk about it now. They won again last they, night. They're twenty-seven and five. They, they did win. They are thirty-two.
0: They are just about. They are almost. It's like ninety-nine percent guaranteed of making the playoffs. It's just the seeding right now. Yeah. Right now they're fourth in the West, which is just super exciting. But here's the BYU angle. How about this? After the game last night, Donovan Mitchell, the he better be rookie of the year candidate. Was wearing BYU socks after the game. Really? Yes. That is
1: awesome too. There you go. There's your cougar tie in. Ben Simmons is going to be the rookie of the year. I don't like it, but yeah, Ben
0: Simmons wears bi- Ute socks, so he shouldn't win it. <laughs> he goes bias.
1: Kyle Kuzma wears
0: Utah socks. What's up with that? I like those odds though. Ninety nine percent sure of getting yeah. in the playoffs. Which wow. is just crazy because at one point in the season they were nine games below five hundred and just looked horrible. So it's just quite a, it's just an unbelievable turnaround.
3: So you're saying
0: that there's hope for the Los Angeles Dodgers too? Mm, why not? Two and five.
5: Two and five.
0: One hundred and sixty-two games. Man, there's plenty of time. Oh I my gosh, so. there's time. <laughs> but according to you, the Astros are going to take it all. Yeah.
3: Okay. All right.
1: And/or the Yankees.
3: Well, I I hope not you me. have Hall a great. All right. <laughs> the judge is in. How does it go again?
0: The
5: uh is session. Court is in session. There we yes. go.
3: Uh, okay, um, I hope you have a great show. I hope you we need to. have a great time seeing a quiet place. I'm and, intrigued now, and we'll quiz you on it when you come back next week because you have to
0: go see it now. Okay, oh, you're committed. I went from not knowing anything about it, <laughs> not knowing anything about its existence, to now really wanting to see this. Sheila Lines paying for it. I'm in. It is fantastic. <laughs> okay, uh, let me just give you this little clue:
3: don't ever get pregnant during. Uh, a post-apocalyptic movie.
1: Okay. Good to know. By the way, uh, Spencer Linton's uh, at the hospital with his wife, Brittany, expecting child number three as we speak. Okay. So very see, exciting.
3: See if they can give birth before, com- the, apocalypse. before the apocalypse. Yes, yes because exactly. otherwise she's going to have to do it in complete silence. Anyway, how's okay. that That's for a tease? mostly hard
1: for her, <laughs> not for Spencer.
3: All right, fellas, we'll have a great show. Knock them Man, dead, as Dr. You. Matt would say. And as we like to do with every show, we like to end – well, we don't do end it with every uh, – no, we do. This is our panning for good segment to end off the show. There's good in them dire hills.
5: <laughs>
3: While we did highlight VidAngel on the show today and Neil Harmon and their efforts to bring families edited films that they can all watch together – We are aware of the fact that there are several other companies out there that are trying to do this very thing as well. We need to mention ClearPlay. ClearPlay is another company that actually, they do have a streaming service, but they're known for their DVD and Blu-ray players. They're starting to get more into the streaming part of it now, but uh, they have a a player that you actually put the physical DVD or Blu-ray into it, and I don't think it's as... Uh you can't get as specific with the language on the DVD side of things. You might be able to with the with the streaming, but you choose either like a, a light level of filtering or a moderate level of filtering or an extreme level of filtering. I've used it before. Great company. I, I believe in what they're doing too. Another one is TV Guardian it's probably one that's not as known as well known but it's a device that you hook in hook into the cables same type of deal where you can edit out the profanity and scenes that are objectionable or offensive to you or your family so again we do that every week here on on I almost said spring cleaning on screen cleaning we like to highlight all that is good in the entertainment world and so we appreciate the efforts of TV Guardian ClearPlay and of course Angel. that's going to do it for the show here today we hope you had a good time and we hope that you join us next week here on byu radio sirius xm 143 where you can hear screen cleaning where it's our mission to bring you all that is good in entertainment